Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Do the uh, YouTube channel, Jay Dyer. I have two books on symbolism and film. Uh, and then I have two books coming out this year on philosophy and orthodox theology. And I am the creator and the host of the TV show Hollywood Decoded. So... That's pretty much what I do. Um, I talk a lot about uh, theology, geopolitics, philosophy. I do a lot of debates pretty regularly. Um, that's it. Awesome. I just saw that you were on the kill stream last night, was it? Um, yeah, how, I was on the kill stream. Uh, it went great. It was a lot of fun. It was a pretty easy debate. I, I knew that uh, knew where it was going to go from the outset. Um, so... It lasted about an hour and a half, and uh, it was pretty much a bloodbath. Yeah, I saw in the comments, a lot of people said that you easily won it. So, congrats on that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, are you, is this your server? Or no, I'm one of the admins. Um, oh, okay. Doobie's, Doobie's one of the admins as well. Uh, the owner, Eris, she, she might be here later. Okay. But, uh, I'm going to be the one running it. And um, i got some questions lined up for you already, so I'll get to those right now. Um, Lana wants to know if there's MK Ultra sleeper agents, and if Hollywood actor, uh, if there's any Hollywood actor MK Ultra sleeper agents that you know of. Um, <clears throat> there probably are. Uh, I don't think that that's really that necessary anymore because the main reason that they went into such depth with the MK Ultra research wasn't really to create these individual sleeper agents, but it was more so to study how to manipulate mass media and to manipulate people on a large scale. So they don't really need a whole lot of the individual sleeper agents. I do think that there have been some examples of those and some of the, some people have probably had pretty good uh, chances of fitting that bill, but I don't think that typically speaking, there's a whole lot of those necessarily running around. They're just, they're just not that necessary. Um, there are, I'm sure, some Hollywood A-listers who have undergone some pretty intense uh, mind control, I would speculate, but I don't have any hard evidence of the, like, oh, Katy Perry was absolutely put under mind control or something like that. I think there's some good evidence to suggest that uh, Britney Spears probably has, I mean, she's had some handlers, she's had some military uh, 
black ops boyfriends and this kind of stuff which are suspicious so but i don't know if there's like oh i could tell you for sure that uh you know marilyn monroe was like uh you know a mind control agent she could have been a mind control sex operative i think that's pretty plausible given her background and her history and her connections to jfk and the mafia and working for the defense department and her connections to laurel canyon <clears throat> but i don't know that she was necessarily um a sleeper cell yeah, i know she was know. sleeping in a lot of people's cells <laughs> but i don't know <laughs> if she was a sleeper cell awesome um Key of Door wants to know what you would change, or what you most want to change about Hollywood. About what? About Hollywood. Oh, I don't really care too much about Hollywood. I think it's kind of, uh, it's on the way out. I mean, everything's moving to streaming and all this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> Hollywood doesn't have the uh, importance that it had in the last 50, 60, 100 years. So it's kind of achieved its purpose of destroying uh, the existing culture so it really doesn't matter anymore I, I don't really i don't really care i mean I've, I've had a good time in analyzing symbolism in film but uh, i mean hollywood is uh, pretty much coming to an end as we know it. i mean the old studio system is going away and now it's all just becoming an even more weaponized thing like with netflix yeah for sure um all right java bolt has a question for you um he wants to ask it himself so i'm gonna unmute him so I want to start off by thanking you for uh, coming here for the AMA. So my question is, do you think there's any cultural, uh, there's any legitimacy to cultural Marxism? Uh, legitimacy as in, is there, is it such a thing or legitimacy yeah. as in, do they have a good critique? Do you think that there is such a thing as cultural Marxism? Well, yeah, that's the Frankfurt School and we know who the uh, Frankfurt School people are. Uh, I've studied under somebody from the Frankfurt School in my undergrad and graduate days. So I'm very familiar with the writers, Habermas, Horkheimer, Adorno. Uh, I've read uh, a lot of them. So it does exist. Um, it's not like a, this unified kind of conspiracy like people think. It's more so a school of people who helped out uh, against fascism during the period of World War II and afterwards. So they did have a uh, hand in altering Western civilization's culture. They aided the OSS in terms of how to attack, uh, quote, fascism. So there is such a thing as um, cultural Marxism. It does have notable figures, but I mean, it's not like the root of what's taking down Western civilization. In fact, some of the critiques of the cultural Marxists would actually be correct in terms of how they critiqued global corporatism. So the actual system that we're under is global corporatism, which utilizes aspects and elements of cultural Marxism. Okay. Awesome. Um, Comrade Pillow would like to know, uh, she says that empirical evidence shows Christianity and Judaism were definitely not the first religion. Why would you follow another weasel claiming that he's the son of God? Well, uh, I'm not sure what she means by empirical evidence. She'd have to be a little more specific. But most of the time when people make this claim, they're just talking about certain scholars who come from different presuppositions about the assumption that there are uh, older pagan traditions that are reliable or that there are you know atheistic a a a scholars 
in universities that are somehow more reliable than the Genesis account. I believe and I defend the Genesis account. So the assumption that the person's question has, which has not been investigated, is just simply that the Genesis account isn't true. If the Genesis account is true, then the ancient religion is actually Christianity. Uh, Christianity is, in our view, what was going on in the garden. It was the Logos, Jesus himself, who created the world. It's the Logos who's present in all the Old Testament theophanies. And it's the Logos who's predicted to come into time and space uh, in all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. So that's a that person is coming from a different paradigm where they haven't actually investigated the presuppositions. And they're just assuming that when a pagan or an atheist scholar says that there are uh, older traditions of paganism or something like that, uh, that's yet to be demonstrated. So we'd have to actually see the person's argumentation. And I would I would ultimately take that uh, person into a, a critique of their assumptions and their presuppositions. So that person's obviously arguing, arguing from presumably paganism, uh, and I've done many, many debates and critiques with pagans. She's uh, talking pretty hardcore in uh, AMA discussion. But, uh, okay, she... we'll tell her to come on, boys, yeah, and she, debate. She or doesn't, doesn't want, want to. I'm not sure why, but I think you should, Comrade Pella. All right, she said she will. I'm going to mute her. All right, you're unmuted. Hello, what's up? What's up? No, um, sorry, I'm putting this away. Um, so I'm not arguing from paganism. What I'm arguing is from the totality of history and the way you follow it back in time. Um, How do you know the totality of history? What does that even mean? Because it just follows an empirical standard that I hold to that Christianity does not have. How do you empirically know the totality of history? Because they have the evidence. They have empirical and systematic <laughs> ways. That's called, a cir- that's called a circular argument, and who's they? Yeah, and you would how do you how do you empirically know argument on why your God exists because how do you empirically how you you don't even know basic logic and philosophy how do you know empirically the totality of history that's impossible it's an impossible you can't know a universal from an empirical sense data phenomenal experience. Well, what I'm saying is that I would believe that over the Bible. Well, yeah, but your claim doesn't even make sense. You don't even know what you don't even know claiming. You know what a universal claim is. It doesn't matter. What matters to me is what. Yeah, this is basic epistemology, basic logic. Do you know what a universal claim is? You said it doesn't matter. You just made a universal claim. Now you're saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying that the terminology is not important to me. It's not a term. It's not a question of terminology. Dig not, this hole no. around what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. Are you stoned? It are you has stoned? more evidence. Which like, are you? Is why are you sober? <laughs> okay, so I'm just gonna not talk yes. to him. Okay. Let's move on to the next person because this person is uh, too high to talk. Wow. All right. <laughs> wow, Bob. Wow. Let's move wow, on to Bob, the next wow. one. Okay, M. Three K One wants to know. Will the entire truth in regards to the Epstein case ever become public, do you think? No. <laughs> no. I really hope so. Probably not, though. Well, I mean, how would it? I mean, I think most of these big events, 9-11 type things, uh, we never get the full story, and we never will. 
So we kind of have to just kind of work with whatever the approximations of the data that we have, whatever they are, and then, uh, you know, come up with our best uh, approximations. And so whether it's JFK or 9-11 or, or uh, Epstein, I, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. Do you think that Epstein killed himself? No, of course not. <laughs> yeah, he definitely didn't. Um, all right. Miley Professor Undertone wants to know if you have a complete um, syllogism worked out for your uh, presupposing of the Christian God. Well, this is the transcendental argument, and uh, we've listed many versions of that. In fact, in the debate with Dr. Malpass uh, in the second half towards the end, I actually did put forth a syllogistic version of it. You could phrase it in different ways, but off the top of my head, yeah, I could give you one. Um, reality, uh, which I'm, I'm by what I mean by reality is a worldview, uh, epistemology, ethics, metaphysics. Okay, so reality, a.k.a. a worldview presupposes transcendentals and transcendental categories. To justify and ground these transcendental categories, we need a being that can ground them, and that being is God. So that's the simplest way I could put it for you. Therefore, that God exists. Thank you. Now, if one denies that, if one doesn't accept that syllogism, then one has to disagree with one uh, aspect of the syllogism somewhere, and any d denial of any of those points, right, uh, is what leads to the impossibility of philosophy or knowledge at all. So that's the strength of the argument. So um, the reason it's kind of difficult, you can put it in a syllogism, but the reason it's kind of difficult and the reason people get tripped up is because syllogisms are for, typically speaking, for normative logic, and the transcendental argument is about meta-logic. So it is possible to put a metalogical question into a syllogism, but it's kind of difficult for a lot of people to understand. So, but it can be done. Uh, you could look at Gerdell's in incompleteness theorems, where you have a mathematical form of a, a transcendental argument, and the form is solid, it's valid, but a lot of people don't understand it, and they find it confusing because normative logic, typically speaking, doesn't appeal outside of itself. But in this case, it is appealing outside of itself, so it's actually a transcendental paradigmatic argument. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Warwick? By the way, by the way, if anybody, I, it's, this is your show, so you can run it however you want to, but if anybody wants to hop on and debate, I don't care. I'll, I'll debate whoever. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I've been looking at the discussion. He didn't seem to reply. Um, all right. Warwick wants to know, isn't your theology just Neoplatonism with different definitional standards? No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, I've shown many times over that the central argumentation of one of our greatest theologians, St. Basil the Great, is constantly arguing against Neoplatonism. In fact, the essence-energy distinction, which is unique to orthodoxy, itself is primarily the apologetic means by which the Eastern Fathers refute Neoplatonism. So this is a, really a basic bitch misunderstanding. I like that. <laughs> uh, Warwick, do you want to respond? Alright, I think not. Uh, next question. Oh, he's he's there. Um, Mano has a question for you that he wants to ask him. Mano, the hands of fate. What's up? Mano, you're unmuted. 
is there. Go to the next person. Um, yes says that Catholics are heretics. What should be done to fix them? Uh, well, I do what I'm doing to try to call Roman Catholics back to the real Catholic faith. Uh, the irony is, of course, that Orthodoxy is both Roman and Catholic. Uh, and in fact, we would argue that we actually have more of a claim to being Roman and Catholic because Byzantium was the Eastern Roman Empire, and the Byzantines all refer referred to themselves as Romeoi, as Romans, because they were under the continuation of the of the the Roman Imperium. The Roman Imperium continues in the East, uh, in in those Byzantine emperors. So, for us, Orthodoxy is the continuation of the Catholic Church of the first millennium. Uh, in Ratzinger's writings, for example, he actually admits this. He says that Orthodoxy has continued the tradition of the first millennium of Christianity, but he says it's been uh, fossilized and hasn't changed. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we actually see that as a positive. We see the eternality of truth as something that we want to preserve. So we want to be completely the same as the church of the first millennium. We don't want to have innovations that we see the Roman Catholic Church is having. So I would say that the best way to appeal to the Roman Catholics is to try to get them to understand that point, to look at the fact that Vatican II is the most clear preeminent example, and, and especially with the recent Amazon Synod and Pachamama, that the Roman Catholic Church has completely uh, devolved um, into other Somebody saying that is it are there rules about I'm not spamming other people's servers. I don't know who they're talking to. Somebody sending me messages. But anyway, um, so so I would just say that we got to call them back to orthodoxy, because if you look at uh, the pillars of orthodoxy, whether it's St. Gregory Palamas or whether it's St. Mark of Ephesus, that's what they did. They called people back to uh, the Orthodox Church. So that's the solution. I think that kind of leads into another question that someone asked. Um, Kiev asked why orthodoxy instead of other sects? Why what? Why orthodoxy instead of other sects? Well, because I think orthodox Christianity is true. Uh, I don't think the other sects are true. So, I mean, that's kind of a easy, I don't know how, how else to 
I mean, the Orthodox Church has a history of building civilizations. It has a history of creating saints. Uh, and again, I think that it is the uh, pure expression of the first millennium of Christianity. When you read the Church Fathers and the decrees of the ecumenical councils for the first millennium of Christianity, the first uh, seven slash eight ecumenical councils up into the eighth, ninth centuries, what you see is the kind of Christianity that's preserved uh, in the Orthodox Church. And so really, in my view, we would kind of agree with the, the Roman Catholic Church that there's four marks of the church. There's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right? Whichever church has those four marks is the true church. And I would argue that the last hundred years of Roman Catholicism has demonstrated that it does not possess those marks. And so that's been made, again, manifest by Vatican II, the last 60 plus years of the papacy and Pachamama and the Amazon Synod, uh, the Assisi gatherings and so forth, that uh, that group, that uh, entity, the Roman Catholic entity, uh, does not preserve the Christianity of the first millennium and Orthodoxy still does. It doesn't mean that Orthodoxy doesn't have problems. It doesn't mean that Orthodoxy doesn't have uh, corrupt bishops. But we would say that problems in Orthodoxy are problems like we see in the first millennium of the church. You know, this patriarchate go going out of communion with that patriarchate, this bishop being corrupt, that be bishop being corrupt. But Roman Catholicism hangs everything on one guy. And so if one guy becomes a heretic or if that one bishopric uh, falls into heresy or defects, uh, then, um, you know, to me that suggests that it's obviously not true, right? I mean, one of the key doctrines of Roman Catholicism is that the church cannot defect, it's indefectible. And the way that they prove that is that the Roman see is indefectible. Well, in the last 60 plus years, you have a complete defection uh, of the Roman see. And so, hence all the different scattered fringe groups, a set of acontists, set of privationists, SSPX, all these different groups competing to try to preserve who the true Roman Catholics are. Uh, and we would just say that, see this as a vindication. If you read, uh, there's a great letter that Metropolitan Seraphim of Paris, who's a pretty based uh, a Greek bishop, he wrote to Francis when Pope Francis was elected Pope. Uh, it's about an 80-page letter, and he really just encapsulates in 80 pages better than anything else I've seen all the problems and innovations of Roman Catholicism in the last millennium. So that we would agree with the trads about the problems of the 20th century, uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic Church, but we would just say that the, that, that the roots of the problem actually go back way further than the last century or 1700s Freemasonry. The roots of the problem go back to um, the Renaissance. You could look at the ecumenists in the Renaissance who influenced the papacy back at that time. If you read uh, Hoffman's book, Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, uh, and then all the way back to the debate and dispute over the filioque and divine simplicity and uh, St. Photius the Great and his mystagogy. All of those critiques have borne out over time. And that's really what Metropolitan Seraphim of Piraeus highlights in his excellent 80-90 uh, page letter to Pope Francis. Um, the Beholder wants to ask you a question. I'm going to unmute. All right, Beholder, you're unmuted. Um, Hello. Can you... Can you... All right. Yeah. You can... All right. Uh, okay. Uh, my question for you, Mr. Dyer, is that um, well, my my question is regarding metaphysics. I would like you to prove that there is a God. Um, I, I've taken issue with a lot of things that you've um, already answered, and a cursory glance at your uh, YouTube channel is a bit concerning. Uh, 
regarding how you've tried to prove God. So I'd like you to approach it however you want. It's concerning. <laughs> You're concerned for me. What? Well, yes. For example, um, you, you believe that math can prove the existence of God. At least that's what it says here. Numbers prove God. Defense math. of metaphysics. Math. Like mathematics. Oh, math. I'm sorry. I think you said math. Uh, yeah, yeah, in, in your defensive metaphysics and traditional philosophy, uh, right. you say that number. Correct. Hello? Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yes, so I, w I would like you to explain that. Um, I also think that you're not uh, using Gödel's incompleteness theorem correctly. Uh, it's a argument about set theory and that sets appeal outside of themselves to prove themselves, right? That's what the incompleteness theorems are. Okay, but are, right? you, you understand that Kurt Gödel himself fell into a deep depression because he realized that he couldn't prove God because of his theory. Yeah, but I don't make Gödel's argument for God. He has a different argument for God's existence. All I use All for I God okay, is so, let me so finish then what is, no, what is your... Hold on. Let me finish my point. All I used Gerdell for was to show that the form of his argument is a transcendental argument. I didn't say it was a transcendental argument for God. Okay, but you, you acknowledge that um, the incompleteness theorem is correct. Sure. Well, what does his falling into the depression oh, okay. have to do with anything? So... Argument for God. Is it a first order or second order logic system? It's neither. It's a metalogical. Um. Okay. Give me your argument. I'll. I'll... Well, there's an essay that accompanies that talk, which is "Numbers Prove God," and the essay is about the status of numbers as as metaphysical entities or concepts or abstracts. Okay, well, abstract there's an essay. How, it's certainly not a first-order logic system. It certainly falls under the, you know, the the, the um, effect that Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah, you're confusing my argument for God's existence with Gödel's argument. They're two different things. N no, okay, so Gödel's uh, yes, incompleteness are, theorem yeah, states that basically any second-order or higher logic system is going to be uh, inconsistent, correct? It's going to be inconsistent because it appeals outside of itself, correct? Yes. So, if you have to write an entire essay to prove your proof of God, do you think that it falls under, you know, the hand of death, girdles, incompleteness theory? Yeah, I don't think you understand what the transcendental argument is. It's a different type of argumentation that's a meta-logical, meta-ethical, metaphysical type of argument. It has nothing to do with Gerdell's argument as to the content of Gerdell's argument. Okay, so the content of Gerdell's argument is about mathematics and set theory. The form of that argument is a transcendental argument. The oh, only, so your, the your only, argument let me is finish, not actually only, logical, it's metalogical. A metalogical question or argument is still logical, dude. No, because you're making metaphysical assumptions, which is uh, whence my original everybody question. Made, How can you prove the existence made, of God? You don't know what you don't know you what don't... a transcendental argument or what a meta-logical argument is. You're confusing that with normative logic. Well, I I'm assuming that what you mean by metalogical argument is that you're making an assumption about the actual like logic itself. Correct. You know a, so that you know requires a metaphysical judgment. That requires you know a, a metaphysical assumption. No. 
uh, I haven't studied exactly. logic, but I know basic, like, you know, logic uh, yeah. and algebra. Right, so you know normative basic logic. We're talking about a transcendental argument, which deals with meta-level questions. The fact that it deals with meta-level questions does not mean that it's not logical. Well, it's not based on a logic system. Yes, it's, it it's based, it's based on a meta. On, it's based on a, it's a, it's based on a higher form of logic, which is transcendental categories, transcendental logic. Okay, could could you tell me what you mean by? Yeah, Gödel's incompleteness theorem is a form of transcendental argumentation about math. Yes, it, it's about different algebras. For example, you know, uh, if you were to take, you know, a second-order logic you, system yeah. like well, maybe, the piano maybe, uh, maybe you should understand what a transcendental is before you come to try to argue about it. Okay, so I'm assuming that when you say meta-logic, you mean that there is some sort of... Um, uh, assumption about the logic itself. That's part of it, but that's not what the argument is. Okay. Yes. Because yes. All. I, yes. All. I can assume just based on what meta means. You know, metaphysics. Are you, are you meta ethics. Meta logic. You're so you're making you're making a metaphysical. Uh, the argument is that everybody makes metaphysical, metalogical, and metaethical assumptions. Well, that's kind of the problem. So you see, exactly. I, I'm I'm of the uh, I'm of the philosophy of Cartesian skepticism. So I would I would like to say that uh, metaphysical assumptions are not warranted. Uh, the only thing that can be known is the thinking self. So, yeah, uh, self? for example, what is the self? What is the self? Uh, we don't know. So I, you I'm made not... a metaphysical you made a metaphysical assumption about agnosis, right? Uh, yet your conclude yet your proposition assumes that you have the existence of a self. A self is a metaphysical entity. No, the, it doesn't assume a self. It you so just the fact said that, that you think exists. implies that you exist. Do you? What, it, what is one the, of the what is the existing I there? Do you think that, existence you is think a metaphysical? You are the existing I. Like there is. Do you think are you are you asking me to tell you whether it's like a soul or a mind or do a body? You think is that existence, what you're asking? Do you think existence falls into the category of metaphysics? Yes, that's literally the whole field of okay, ontology. Okay, so, so it assumes metaphysics. Okay, so can we move on to somebody who is beyond philosophy one hundred and one? You're, but you're dodging my question. My question is: I just you're making your a metaphysical assumption. I want you to prove that you can do. I just showed you how you assume metaphysics when you said that you're not going to assume metaphysics. So can we move on? But I didn't assume I existed. It's a cogito ergo sum argument. I know this what, was an do, argument that Descartes that, that, made a very long don't, time don't ago. Don't you think? I, Nobody I, has I argued I've that he made an assumption. I've read Descartes. You're, you're debating with somebody who's actually had graduate. Actually I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you have. You have a master's okay. degree, okay. don't you? Correct. Yeah, so yeah. you're yeah, arguing so, at a philosophy 101 level where you said graduate training, and I'm showing you how you're wrong. Yeah, I I actually I I don't have any training in philosophy, but that no, doesn't you know no, that doesn't that doesn't change my my credence. So I would I would like you to take my yeah, question. No, you but you're I've already answered you, and you don't get the answers. I've answered you multiple times now, and you don't get the answers. Yeah, we're gonna move on. Can we move on? It's been going on for yeah. Um. All right. Let's see. Um, so Mano doesn't want to speak. Uh, he asked a question earlier. He, so he says, if God is one, 
how can Christians have so many varying and even conflicting positions on theological, social, and moral? Well, this is actually a feature of any worldview, uh, any worldview that claims to have some unifying principle, whether it's atheism, whether it's rationalism, whether it's monotheism. Uh, basically, any position that you have, even if it's not about theism, even if it just uh, affirms like a generic notion of quote-unquote truth, if it believes in objective truths, which I think is unavoidable, even if the system is relativistic, a relativistic system still assumes that relativism is in some sense objectively true, that is not going to um, necessarily mean that everybody who adopts that system agrees or has all the same views. So this is just a feature of uh, human society, human beings. Human beings come to different conclusions. Human beings reason differently. Human beings reason falsely and erroneously. So they come to erroneous conclusions. That really has nothing to do with the truth or falsity or coherence of the system uh, under, under purview. So that's why it's invalid to, for example, if I was to argue with an atheist and I said, well, all you atheists, you can't agree on uh, what's true. All you Darwinists can't agree on what's true. Like that, that wouldn't be a valid argument. It wouldn't be a valid approach because the unity or disunity of the people in that group really have nothing to do with the truth or falsity of the system itself. Um, Jonathan has a question for you. I'm gonna. Yeah, uh, what's up, Jay? Um, basically, like, um, w would you say that all humans share like an essence, like one essence? Uh, yes, all humans share a uh, human nature. Okay, yeah, because um, then I want like, because I I almost want to apply this to the Trinity because when we talk about all humans sharing one essence, that s the the essence that we share isn't itself personal; it's impersonal. Right, we're the persons that are distinct from the essence. So, would you say that the because in the Trinity, the three persons all share one essence? Is the essence itself personal, or is it only personal in virtue of the three persons that are distinct from the essence? And that's really my question. It's only personal in virtue of the three persons, and that's what. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The meaning in hypostatize is. In hypostatize is used by St. Cyril and subsequent church fathers 
uh, up into St. Saint, uh, Maximus and St. John Damascus, all the way up into St. Gregory Palamas consistently to mean that very thing, that nature exists in and only in the mode of persons. The Eastern Fathers also consistently apply the analogy of one essence and uh, hypostasis, and the nature of person distinction in the Trinity, to humans. They actually do apply that analogy pretty consistently, while always pointing out, of course, that there's a dissimilarity because humans are individual separate beings from one another, even though they share common nature, but their, their individuality makes them separate beings. It's different in the Trinity because the Trinity exists in a mode of being that humans do not. They are not separate. Right. So because of perichoresis, each of those persons perfectly and fully indwells one another. And so they have a... Uh, Without losing the distinction, hypostatically, Absolutely, obviously. right. And the reason that they don't lose that distinction is because we distinguish the persons on the basis of hypostatic properties. And the, the, the where we start our Trinitarian theology is the hypostatic property of the Father as the sole cause and arche. So personhood, the personhood of the Father is the source and sole arche of the Godhead. And that's why we don't start with essentialism. Uh, like the West tends to do, especially in the later uh, post-Augustinian Latin period, uh, right. the, the uh, late medieval, early medieval uh, Latin theological Trinitarian debates are almost always dominated by beginning with the presupposition of an absolutely simple usia, and its simplicity and how you can reason to it from uh, natural theology. So you're correct, uh, and that's why it's very important to understand St. Cyril's Christology, because the inhypostatic principle that is applied to the triad is what saint cyril applies to christ when he becomes incarnate so when we consider christ's human nature in itself it is impersonal but in terms of being incarnate it's not impersonal because it has for its personhood the divine person of the logos right um because i i noticed that you know obviously when you read the bible it refers to god as a as he so is that referring whenever we say god is a he are we refer like do the three persons sort of share a collective um he so to say or are we always referring to god the father or god the son in, in specific yeah that's a great question um it's actually the triad so the but the mode in which the triad speaks or acts or does is always in common it's just that the each of the persons has a unique role uh, in those triadic actions. So every action of God is from the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. That includes uh, the eternal energies from all all eternity, like the God radiating his divine glory from all eternity is from the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. The action of creating the world is from the, fa- from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And then the uh, work of redemption is also consistently from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And that's why Different hypostases in redemption do different things. They take on different roles, even though there's one common action of God in every one of those uh, events or every one of those actions. So, for example, the second person of the Godhead is who became incarnate, not the Father and not the Spirit. So the Son is able to enter into a mode of being and existence that the other two hypostases do not. So we think that only Orthodox theology really provides the, the means and the conceptual framework as to how theologically that's possible. In the Roman Catholic scheme, in terms of its dogma of absolute divine simplicity, we don't see how they could consistently say that absolute divine simplicity is true and at the same time that one hypostasis enters into time and space in a mode of being that the other two do not. So, correct. Uh, and, and by the way, it's important to understand that not only is nature inhypostatized, meaning that it exists in the mode or tropos of persons, the actions and energies of God are also inhypostatic. So, we, there's no generic essentialism in terms of our triadology. All of the energies of God are personal, meaning that they're in hypostatized. They all come to us from the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. 
Yeah, because uh, I was reading through, and real quick, uh, like some, and Van Til seems to say that he has this really wacky view that the Trinity is both one, that God is both one person Correct. and three persons. What do you think about that conclusion? Correct. Van Til uh, accurately saw the problem in absolute divine simplicity in the Western view because he wanted to avoid essentialism and impersonalism. This is the critique that the Greek fathers and the Orthodox Church makes of the West, in essence. Van Til saw that, but the problem is that Van Til was still working from within the framework of Augustinianism. So he had an uh, absolute divine simplicity, divine exemplarism view that Augustine had, and he didn't understand Orthodox theology. So precisely because he doesn't have the accurate nature-person distinction, and as a result of that, the essence-energy distinction that the Orthodox Church has, uh, Van Til had no solution, but he did have the correct analysis of the problem. Yeah, it's almost like uh, orthodoxy or the, I guess, the essence-energy distinction in particular and the wit and, like, all that sort of would have completed Van Til's apologetic. Yes, I make that argument many times, and that's, in fact, what would be uh, part of the book that I'm working on right now with Father Deacon Dr. Ananias. Um, and so Van Til understood that there needed to be, uh, there, there's not an, uh, an impersonal essence that we have a contact with in God, that we only have contact with God who is a personal God, but he also didn't understand the monarchia of the Father. He didn't understand that the Father is the sole cause of the Godhead. And I think if he had understood that, he would have had a much better um, Trinitarian theology. Thanks for answering that, Jeff. You bet. Cool. Thanks. Okay, so thought is actually a segue for a bit. So I'm going to take over the rest of the AMA. Uh, first sure. question is from Eris. Uh, Eris, you are on mute. Um, okay, cool. Thanks. So I was wondering. Um, if you had any theories or ideas on why there's been um, a recent like upsurge in child abuse material or child pornography in like the last 10 years? Uh, probably the prevalence of the internet. I mean, and probably the lucrative means of different groups to blackmail people. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just off the cuff. What I would guess. Oh, you think it has to do with, um, with blackmail? Like, well, not Wait, in every case, but that? in many cases, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of black markets are used to blackmail people, whether it's drugs or whether it's whatever, whether it's, uh, you know, Epstein was, was blackmailing people. Go back to the Franklin cover-up. Uh, Craig Spence was filming the sexual activities and blackmailing people. So, I mean, not everything about black is blackmail, but I'm saying that a, a big part of it in terms of why it's so widespread is just the ease of utilizing the Internet and this kind of stuff to blackmail people. I'm not saying that's the total reason, but the main reason is just the growing expansion of the internet, I guess. Cool, thanks. Cool, okay. Um, so next question is going to be from, uh, let's go with um, Gremlin. Uh, Gremlin asks, uh, are the universal laws of logic immaterial? Yes. Oh. Uh, do you want to expand on that at all, or is there not any need to? Well, uh, when we say something abstract or immaterial, we mean not extended in space and time. So the laws of logic, universal categories, abstract entities are immaterial, meaning that they're not ex extended in space and time. So, yeah. Okay. Next question is from Adan. Uh, that is how oh, he wants to speak. So, Adan, you're unmuted. By the way, I, would, I don't mean by that they have no relevance or no interaction with space and time. I just mean that they're not extended in space, I should say. Hello. Mm -hmm. Hello, Jay. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. And sure, I have a question for you. How do you know 
what God revealed through special revelation was revealed through the Christian Bible and not something else like, you know, Islam, Judaism? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that, uh, I mean, in one sense, Judaism and Islam do have uh, a shared lineage. So there's aspects of what Judaism, even in the Talmud, I mean, the Talmud, for example, will cite the Bible, right? So because we do accept the Bible, there's going to be areas and specific sections of the Quran or the Bible where we would say, okay, that's true, but that's, you know, part of our revelation. So in the case of those religions, it's a question of who is in real continuity with the revelation before Christ, right? So is it Judaism, is it Islam, or is it Christianity? Um, that's where I would take that specific debate into a comparison of the text of the Old Testament, right? This Because that's the crucial kind of turning point that these different groups disagree on. And I would try to argue uh, about the about which religion is actually consistently uh, fulfilling these predictions and promises of the Old Testament. So the easiest way I would try to argue that would just be to look at the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and try to demonstrate that Christ does fulfill those prophecies and that you have in Christianity a coherent, consistent um, tradition that does align with what the Old Testament predicts will be the Messianic age and that you don't get that in Islam and Judaism. And would you say that it's the Old Testament that is the foundation? It's the base. Correct. We see those as a uh, as Christian revelation. In other words, this is this is the revelation of Jesus before he becomes incarnate. And how how can we know that this is God's revelation through the Old Testament if it's like the base? Well, there's a lot of different means by which one could approach this argument. Again, one way that we could look at uh, the, the veracity of it is that there are many, many predictions that are true. So, for example, Daniel in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9 predicts successive world empires. So he, he predicts, and, and even the most liberal scholars date the book of Daniel to the to the uh, second century BC, so the Maccabean period. I personally don't think that Daniel was written in the Maccabean period. I think that Daniel goes back to uh, the Babylonian exile period. But uh, if we even grant the the uh, liberal dating of Daniel, uh, Daniel still predicts the successive empire after the uh, uh, the Medo Persians and the Greeks to be the Roman Empire. So he he lists these these four giant world empires, and he says that under the last world empire, and we understand that to be Rome the one that follows the, the, the Greeks, uh, he says that that's when the Messiah will be born. He says that in Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27, that the temple will be destroyed and the Messiah will bring in everlasting righteousness. And we interpret that. We understand that to be one of the clearest, easiest ways to show that when Jesus came, the uh, Jewish system ended 40 years later, just as uh, Luke 21 and Matthew 20 predict with the destruction of the temple and the erection of Jesus' church. Um, so. That's how we know on just on the surface that there are all these true predictions. But if, if you want a more philosophic argument, I would argue that the Christian worldview as a whole is the only one that's coherent. And because of this coherence, then it's fair to say that in your opinion or the best argument is just Christianity, but there's no absolute, um, you know, one plus one equals two answer to well, I, I actually believe that uh, arguments uh, at the level of our most basic paradigm assumptions are the most strong arguments. I, I even think they're stronger arguments than one plus one equals two. So if you understand the, the 
expansive grand nature of what a transcendental argument is uh their arguments that are so strong that to deny them actually leads to the destruction of the possibility of knowledge whatsoever uh so if if that's true and i, I think that it is i mean obviously not everybody's going to agree with even accepting transcendental arguments but i think they're logical i think they're valid um most philosophers would say that they're in a sense valid or logical not that that means it's true. I, I realize that's an appeal to authority. I'm just kind of giving a testament. I'm not saying that that makes it true. Um, uh, so again, in the realm of philosophy, that's really the only type of argument that you could give is a transcendental type of argument. And I think that they're the strongest arguments. And so in my view, they're actually strong. I would argue that even something like one plus one equals two. And the reason for that is that a transcendental type of argument is actually the basis for what grounds even something like mathematics, that one plus one equals two has to be grounded in some way, and uh, transcendental categories actually ground mathematics. So the, the argument that the guy was bringing up earlier in my essay, Numbers Prove God, actually deals with that very point. Okay. okay. Is it fair enough to – can I go on or uh, – One more question. Okay, just a, a quick one. Uh, is it okay to believe in Islam? Uh, no, I think Islam is not true, and I think Orthodox Christianity is true. So what do you mean, is it okay? Uh, no, it's, it's not okay. It's not okay to believe anything that's not true. <laughs> I mean, error, error doesn't have rights, in other words. Oh, uh, just because, you know, in good faith, a minute ago you were saying how it, Christianity has the best arguments. But how does it rule out Islam? So I'm just saying, is it okay to be Islamist? Well, I would say that, that it's a, uh, when we're speaking of the systems, the systems are not true. So I'm not saying that there aren't uh, individual Muslims who don't believe true things or know true things or come to true conclusions about things. But that could be said of anybody. That could be said of an atheist or even a Satanist. But what we're talking about, the religious systems as a whole, and irrespective of the adherence of those religions, we're talking about whether these belief systems are coherent and consistent amongst themselves. And I, I believe that when we compare uh, you know, rabbinical Judaism to Orthodox Christianity or Roman Catholicism to Orthodox Christianity or Islam to Orthodox Christianity, I think that Orthodox Christianity is true, and so therefore the other ones are not true. So it's true. Yeah, I mean, having a 60% uh, of the truth is, is not good enough. You have to have the whole thing. I'm not saying that you have to have a PhD to be saved, but what I'm saying is that, that uh, no, I, I don't, if I, would, if I thought that they were true, then I wouldn't be orthodoxy. Okay, thank you, Jay. Yeah, man. Thank you, Adam. Okay, uh, speaking of coherent arguments, um, Javavolt has a question. Javavolt, you're on mute. Yeah, so my question was, um, can you provide a deductive argument for the existence of God that doesn't beg the question? Well, transcendental arguments are, strictly speaking, neither inductive or deductive. I mean, in a sense, you could say that they're deductive and that they begin with assumptions, but um, really they're outside of the paradigm of normative logic, right? So we have to understand what kinds of questions are being asked. And there are certain philosophic assumptions that go into transcendental argumentation. For example, a person could say, well, I don't accept transcendental. Okay, I mean, you could do that, but then I could, I think, demonstrate how they are valid and they are true and that everybody actually does accept transcendental arguments. So what I, my response to you is that there's no position that is free from circularity at the paradigmatic level. And it helps to understand the, the 
course of Western philosophy and the way that Western philosophy goes is actually in say in the ancient and medieval period you had what was what what was anachronistically known as classical foundationalism. Like most of the world was not skeptical, most of the world wasn't sophist, so they would assume that there are properly basic maxims and beliefs that you could just well, everybody agrees in causality. Everybody agrees there's teleology, right? And so it's not until the uh, Enlightenment, well, the nominalists and then the Enlightenment and the empiricists and the skeptics where you have, you have the beginning of the questioning, and even Descartes, the beginning of the questioning of basic assumptions, basic logic, and basic principles, right? So when people are questioning that, you can't just apply or appeal to classical foundationalist principles, right? You can't appeal to something properly basic when people start to question whether there's anything properly basic. This is what Descartes attempts to do. He starts to question, quote, properly basic beliefs. And eventually the skeptics take it further. And so they question all logic, they question all metaphysics, they question all basic maxims and beliefs. And that leads them to skepticism. So the modern world is dominated by that skepticism. So when you ask me, can you offer a worldview argument or a transcendental argument that's not circular or self-referential, my response to you is that you actually haven't understood the course of philosophy and that all truth claims ultimately are self-referential and uh, circular. And that's why the transcendental argument has its force is because it realizes that we're not really in the paradigm of classical foundations. We're in the paradigm of views and beliefs being theory-laden, right? So this is what's called coherentism. And coherentism is a way to look at logic uh, as self-referential because ultimately how do you justify logic without using logic well you can't right so the course of philosophy has most people in in philosophy today they're not classical foundationalists anymore so your question presupposes the normative uh view of classical foundationalism and, and most people aren't classical foundationalists anymore they're skeptics yeah so i have two responses to that the first one is um it's interesting that you say that some arguments uh, require a degree of circularity when you criticize somebody earlier for using a circular argument. Right, My second because question he was using is, normative logic. Normative logic, you cannot be circular. At the paradigm level, everybody's circular. Do you, do you understand that distinction? Okay, can you explain why in a transcendental argument you can be circular? But not because it, because it's unavoidable. Because everybody is circular at the... At, can you prove logic without using logic? No. So the justification of logic itself this metalogical question is circular okay nobody so can avoid saying, that so are you saying that in normative logic you can prove things non-circular in a non-circular fashion <clears throat> a transcendental argument is not a normative logical argument it's a paradigmatic level argument it's about it's an argument about logic itself so it appeals outside of the set you could say like Gerdel's theorem and 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 so that's why it's different so it's not illogical it's just not operating under the categories of normative logic. Well, also, you were arguing for coherentism, but that's mm -hmm. uh, that's a justification scheme. It seems more like you're arguing for the coherent theory of truth. But then my question is, how do you I determine um, which set of propositions is more coherent than another one? Right, so there is an intuitive, uh, there is a common sense aspect to the transcendental Right. Um, you have to presuppose that the, the that you do have some notion of what is coherent. And but the problem is that everybody presupposes it. It's unavoidable. So if all arguments, so you don't have a way of measuring which circular arguments are better than others. 
You do, because there's a difference between a paradigmatic level question and a normative question, right? So when I'm asking a question about, a, let's, say, let's say we take a syllogism about uh, men and mortality, right? All men are mortal. Uh, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, okay? That's uh, like a typical kind of syllogism. That's a normative logical question. It's a typical example. But when we, if you look at Aristotle's, I think, book seven of Metaphysics, um, he says, what happens when somebody says, how do we know logic itself is logical? Okay, that's a different order of, of magnitude. That's a paradigm level question. And the, 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 the issue is that you can't justify or ground or make sense of logic itself without appealing to logic. And that means it's circular. So it's a different level of questioning. Uh, and that's why we talk about it being the presuppositional level of questioning, right? So everybody has presuppositions about ethics, about metaphysics, and about epistemology, whether they recognize it or admit it. And that's why we look at things at that level, the paradigm level, what, what we call a worldview. And then that's how we compare different people's worldviews, because we no longer accept the classical foundationalist model of facts, right? There are no facts that don't come interpreted, that you don't interpret through your framework that aren't theory laden. All facts are theory laden. And I think that the whole of modern philosophy has shown that. Okay. So then this goes back to my earlier question where... Um, how do you determine that one uh, set of beliefs is more coherent than another? Seems like that still hasn't been answered because you're saying because that it does, certain because they don't because they don't, have, they don't contradict they don't. But you're saying that we, we can't prove these presuppositions. We are proving them because they're coherent and they don't contradict, and they're proven by the impossibility of the contrary system. Okay, so are you saying that there is no set of propositions that could be coherent and you, false? Correct. Not at the paradigmatic level, because they would be self-refuting. Okay, I think we've got our... Thank you, Mr. Travel. Our next question is from uh, Elfnor. What values of Christian orthodoxy do you see as useful in guiding us through a post-capitalist society? Uh, the first one that comes to mind would be Sobernost. If you look up the uh, the Russian conception of Sobernost, this is the idea that uh, you do have a duty to your community. You're not an atomistic uh, Adam Smith, uh, David Ricardo Enlightenment individual who is here on to amass uh, capital through usury. You're here to um, you have a different purpose. You have a different telos. Uh, that purpose is to your community, to your family, to your people, to your tribe, to your nation, to all of the and then wider speaking to the uh to the christian world so you have all these uh, uh obligations and duties that are binding on you uh you're not free from obligations which is part of the uh, destructive nature of the libertarian enlightenment laissez-faire ethos so uh, orthodoxy in terms of its classical historic conception if you read something like the ascent of christian law by john mcguckin where he compares the patristic and byzantine formulations of uh, canon law and civil law, you'll see that uh, the, the entire mindset, the entire ethos of orthodoxy is contrary. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Enlightenment uh, libertarian quote unquote civilization, which is basically just uh, satanic in nature because it's all about the individual pursuing his own self interest. Okay. Uh, next question is from Ghost Rider or Verve. Uh, he looks like he actually has three questions. The first is Which patristic literature best summarizes weak panentheism? Best summarizes what? A weak panentheism. Weak panentheism. Well, I assume yeah. by pan panentheism, he's referring to just the orthodox conception of God's immediate presence in the world through his energies. Um, I mean, there's plenty of treatises of the Orthodox Church and Orthodox Church fathers. Basil the Great, uh, letter 8. Basil the Great, letter 38. Basil the Great, letter 234. Um, St. Maximus's uh, teachings in the Ambigua on the Logoi, the Logi. Uh, and then St. John Damascus's book one of the Exposition of the Orthodox Faith, and then uh, St. Gregory Palamas's triads, and um, St. Gregory Palamas's debate with the Barleymite are the most uh, obvious ones that treat of God's uh, immediate presence in the world. And then, of course, I should also mention the Divine Names by Dionysius. I mean, because all those later writers are going to draw on the Divine Names by uh, Dionysius Areopagai, but... Uh, uh, Dionysius is the first to make the essence energy distinction in terms of uh, these later writers appealing to him. Got it. Okay. The next question is, who is your favorite saint? Um, what? Actually, who's what? who is your favorite saint? You, you cut out your favorite what? Favorite saint. Uh, well, my namesake is the prophet Daniel, so... Um, Saint Daniel, <laughs> the prophet Daniel would be my namesake from scripture. And then in terms of the theologians of the church, the, the obvious ones like Saint Basil or Saint Maximus or Saint Photius, uh, or, uh, Saint Gregory Palamas. Uh, next question that he had was, um, oh, someone deleted it. Uh, it, <laughs> I believe... Actually, I can't find it. Okay, well, he had a third question that uh, I'm sure he'll put in the chat. Yeah, you can retype it. Yeah. Uh, next question is going to come from Slav Power. If God is omniscient, how can we have free will? Uh, right. Orthodoxy doesn't have a problem accepting mystery at the level of the omnis. So certainly all the omnis, omnibenevolence, omnipotence, uh, omniscience, are going to involve difficulties that cannot be grasped by human finitude. 
But ironically, actually every system, even the most rationalist system, will include areas where human knowledge and empirical sense data trails off. For example, the human mind can't even conceptualize a kiliagon, right, which is a thousand-sided figure. We know that the kiliagons exist, but we can't actually conceptualize it. Uh, so if we can't even conceptualize something finite with a thousand sides, how much less could we really conceptualize all of the infinite relations between the particulars and the divine? We can't. Um, so we have revealed theology, right? So, and revealed theology is not like, oh, well, that's just an out because you can't answer it. No, I just said every system has areas uh, where our finitude trails off into the unknown. So every system is going to, in a sense, be apophatic and be unable to get to areas that are out there that are unknown. Um, that, will, that will always exist, right? Because humans aren't omniscient. So the book of Job is kind of the model for us for the, the, what we call compatibilism. And, and God basically says to Job when Job asks all those questions about God's omniscience and power, uh, you know, theodicy, how does evil exist with God's goodness, is that ultimately there is a sufficient reason known to God, but that God is not under any obligation to reveal that the, the, all of those uh, uh, reasons to us. So we accept it on the basis of revelation that there is a compatibilism between uh, God's uh, omniscience and, 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 the human w and human will. If God's all knowing and all powerful, there's nothing that can, that, there's nothing that prevents God from creating a world in which human freedom is real. Got it. Okay. Next question is going to be from, let's go with Charmander or Charmander. Uh, you're, you're unmuted. Hey, thanks for taking my question. Uh, I guess to kind of frame it a little bit, I don't definitely don't spend as much time on apologetics and philosophy. But I come from like a like a Baptist perspective, so for me, uh, sometimes I take issue with that the apostolic succession, especially when you talk about verses like um, Acts one through twenty six, uh, and like using verses like that to justify um, the line of succession. <clears throat> and like you mentioned, like something like the namesake. So like when you look at verses like First Corinthians ten, for example, it says like, uh, "Do not say I am uh, of Peter." Like, you know what I mean, for example. Um, so I just wonder sometimes, like, do you think the some of the verses used to justify apostolic succession maybe were not were meant more as like a framework, not so much a, a direct prescription of how the church is to be framed? And if you do think it is kind of what specifically do you think leads you there? Yeah, well, there's a, a, a if you go to. Uh energetic procession right now you can find at the at the top there a lengthy article by perry robinson which is a really good defense of the biblical presentation of apostolic succession um there's not a it's not like we just go to this for that verse and say oh let's build an entire case on that verse here or there no no it's a bunch hold on hold on hold on i'm gonna, I'm gonna address some points that you raised so so absolute succession is something that comes to us from a, looking at the old testament for example in the book of numbers you have the notion of the ordaining and laying on of hands by Moses to be in authority and who would be successors after him. So we don't just base this on the on the New Testament revelation. We also look at it holistically, the way that Old Testament Israel was structured with a hierarchy with the uh, high priest, the, uh, the priest, and the Levite. For us, that's the model of the bishop, the priest, uh, and the diaconate, the, the deacons. If you look in the early on in Acts, when Judas dies, there, it says there needs to be a replacement to his episcopate. If the apostles were not intending to have successors, why did they elect an, a successor to his episcopos? That's the Greek word for episcopate. That's the bishopric. 
if you look at Paul's letters, Paul doesn't just say, uh, don't be of me, don't be of Peter. He's talking about being divisive in terms of following a single person. He's not talking about the actual model of ordination that Paul himself lays down. Paul himself says, Timothy, to Timothy, I laid hands on you. You lay hands on men after will succeed you as the only authoritative voice in Ephesus. Paul is very emphatic in his epistle to Timothy when he says that. And he, by the way, he tells Timothy to pass on everything heard from Paul, not just the written text, but everything he heard Paul teach in Ephesus. So there's a commanding standing injunction to pass down to the people that Timothy and his successors lay hands on. It's very clear. You lay hands on men after you faithful. That deposit of faith that Jude mentions that's once for all delivered to the saints has the exact same model throughout the entire Roman Empire that goes into all the key bishoprics and sees. And we can read all of the first century and second century church fathers that demonstrate this exact same model. And in fact, not only do Clement, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and all those church fathers teach the exact same thing about ordination and about apostolic succession, we can actually go to Protestant scholars like Philip Schaff, who in volume one will actually relate to you, Mr. Baptist, the succession of the bishops of Rome. We would agree with that. We agree in the succession of the bishops of Rome because we believe that the apostles established successors. So there's actually a pretty expansive and extensive uh, defense of apostolic succession from not just the New Testament, but also the fathers who immediately succeeded the apostles, and by the way, who actually put the Bible together. The Bible doesn't give you an infallible list of what the canon of Scripture is. That's why the church and the authoritative successors of the apostles did, and you as a Baptist even utilize that tradition of all of those fathers that believed in apostolic succession and all those fathers together the Bible, all of whom, by the way, believed in all the doctrines that you as a Baptist think are apostate and heretical. Okay, yeah, and I guess not so much of like a argument against, like more like informative. So like what, so what parts of, because uh, you did mention earlier in the beginning that uh, it's not just about the succession laid out there, it's also about like tradition over time. Do you think that that's something that's like not maybe sometimes emphasized enough when kind of like having those conversations? Because a lot of times they come up <clears throat> when you're... Can you, when can you be... Uh, can you be more specific? What do you mean tradition? Yeah, so you were you talking about? about the uh, like the the early like the temple and stuff and how they they had their bishopry and things like this and like it's like um, prominence throughout history. Like a lot of times, uh, I'll see the argument like you made about the verses, which I think was a pretty fair argument. But I I guess like the question would be, so if it if it is pretty clear that the succession like exists, is there like an aspect of it that you think is not being like emphasized enough? Again, it's not a question if the succession exists. It does exist. You can, okay, go to church, yeah. you can go to churches to this day, like Thessaloniki. There's an Orthodox bishop in Thessaloniki. It's the same church in Thessaloniki that goes back to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. That church still exists. So um, it's not a question, again, if it exists. Uh, again, if you read Ignatius, read uh, Irenaeus, if you read St. Clement of Rome, if you read Justin Martyr, if you read all of these church fathers that are in, in the first and second century, they will all tell you the exact same thing. Um, have you read, for example, the Council of Nicaea? Uh, yeah, that's what I said. I don't spend as much time with the apologetics. I was just, I was more <laughs> asking, like, like uh, when it comes to the topic of apostolic succession and like the conversation surrounding, like, do you think that that's kind of what the question is? Like, some of the more historical points are some of the things that don't get emphasized enough, like, like kind of in the conversation now, like when we're talking from like a, a different perspective. 
can you give me an example of a historical thing that's not emphasized? Like, what do you mean? Well, so most of the time, like I said, uh, a lot of times I'll talk to people and they'll they'll speak about the verses in action, like you were take, talking about the, the bishopry, but I was just, I guess, asking more about, like, when it comes to his, historical aspects of it in the Church Fathers, like, if mm -hmm. you do have, like, a, a perspective of, like, sola scriptura, like, in what ways do you think sometimes, like, th there could be, like, more of a bridge there to kind of, of understanding? Like, to, to, yeah, when it comes to historical background. Well, I, I think the the easiest way to bridge this gap is to talk about the canon the canon of scripture itself. So you mentioned people who believe in sola scriptura, and mm -hmm. and when I was when I was a kid, uh, what challenged me was people questioning, well, do you even know how the canon of scripture came to be? So that's kind of set me on a course uh, of investigating mostly Protestant scholars. What I did was I went to reading book after book after book of uh, Protestant and evangelical scholars of all different traditions, Baptist, Anglican, et cetera, uh, kind of giving their defense of the, the centuries of, of how this process came to be. And so I read F.F. F. Bruce, and I read Lee McDonald, and I, re I read uh, Jesuits, I read, I read Anglicans, I read all these different people trying to explain this to me. And what was a common factor in different Protestants was the admission of tradition, the admission of post-biblical tradition that went into how the canon came to be formulated. One of those key things that I didn't even know about as a Protestant is called the lectionaries. The lectionaries of the early church are uh, aspects of liturgy. They're liturgical readings that were done in the different sees, the, the, the different bishoprics and apostolic sees. On a daily basis, you would walk into the church and you'd have daily readings. We still have the daily readings in Orthodoxy today. That was actually a huge part of how the canon came to be, and it took many, many, many centuries for the church to come to consensus uh, on what the canon was, which, by the way, just proved the, uh, the papacy, because if everybody in the first eight centuries believed in the all they had to do was just say, hey, Bishop of Rome, tell us what, what the Bible is. But they didn't do that. They took many centuries to uh, come to a synodal uh, uh, consensus, an ecumenical consensus. Even up into the time of St. John Damascus, there's still unclarity and debate over which books make up the canon. And yet, the Church of Christ exists with full power and authority for all of those seven, eight centuries without a, quote-unquote, complete, concise, clear canon. Mm -hmm. so, the, so that's the way I would bridge the gap with the Protestant is to point out that when you actually understand this and when you understand that all these church fathers we cite, almost all of them, and there's a couple outliers here and there that don't really— give too much credence to the Deuterocanon, uh, almost all of them, I said 90 to 95% of fathers regularly cite the Deuterocanonical books, which Protestants have rejected since the time of Luther. So uh, that, to me, is the easiest way to bridge the gap with a believer in Sola Scriptura. I really appreciate the answer. Uh, sure. That's kind of what's lacking sometimes in the conversation, so thank you for the time. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, next question is from Electro King. Question is, uh, would you consider birth control to be sinful? Uh, birth control causes a woman to be unfruitful and unable to multiply. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. <coughs> yeah, I think that this is kind of a misunderstanding. If you go to uh, orthodoxinfo.com, pretty good Russian Orthodox apologetics website. They have plenty of articles on control. If you go to uh, orthochristian.com, which is another probably the biggest Orthodox website out there. 
Um, they have many articles on this as well. Uh, so no, it's kind of a misunderstanding that that uh, Roman Catholics kind of throw at us like, oh, you your whole church supports uh, free unbridled uh, uh, usage. Uh, no. The fact that certain Greeks at different times have caved in and done certain things does not mean that the totality of the church accepts these things. It's another misunderstanding that Roman Catholics have. Well, they'll, they'll assume that if one patriarch does something, that's like the pope of our church and that the whole uh, church does that. In fact, even if a patriarch, say, Bulgaria or Romania or some place, Serbia, uh, does something, that doesn't mean that in the entire uh, synod of bishops in that nation agrees. The, the, uh, uh, the title of patriarchate comes out of the ecumenical councils and their titles of honor that are given canonically out of tradition. They're movable. They can come and go. So it, they're not little popes for us. They do have honor of certain canonical privileges, but they're not like the pope. So this is a huge misunderstanding that happens all the time. So the fact that this Greek church or that Greek bishop did this or that uh, is irrelevant to whether the, oh, the entire world Orthodox accepts uh, um, you know, birth control or whatever. So the normative view uh, of birth control is wrong, just like we don't, quote, accept divorce. We think that it's a tragedy, but the ancient Latin and the ancient uh, canons of St. Basil, which the uh, Roman Catholic Church accepted for many years, many centuries, uh, does allow for divorce in the case of fornication. So we're not as uh, legalistic and Talmudic and hypocritical as the traditional Roman Catholic position is because everybody knows that Catholics just have annulments and they act just like the verse but they have a legal qualification where they call it oh it's not a divorce because it's annulment you see see we can get around this everybody knows that in the entire world Catholicism it's Roman Catholic divorce and you're just calling it annulment and God doesn't really care about your categories because it's hypocrisy and Jesus actually says that uh, in the case of fornication he actually gives the stipulation so uh, Roman Catholics say, oh well that means that you can separate but you can't actually remarry so again, we're just not as legalistic, and we don't think the early church, uh, in terms of its principles of, of economia and uh, the application of canon law in the first uh, several centuries, uh, economia is not uh, Talmudic legalism, and we think that Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism is absolutely mirroring Talmudic legalism. Awesome. Okay. Uh, next question is, looks like Beholder's coming off around to you. Uh, Beholder, you're on mute. Hello. Um, so, yeah, I had another question for you, but um, I actually want to talk to you about transcendental arguments. So, uh, when explaining transcendental arguments, uh, you know, you, you had a pretty hefty explanation. So, just so that everybody else is clear, uh, a transcendental argument is, uh, I looked this up, uh, in the mean, a transcendental argument is essentially when um, a skeptic is skeptical about, you know, some claim X, um, then uh, they say that claim Y is true, um, and then uh, you have the burden of proof uh, to make the skeptic uh, believe in a claim uh, to show that um, X is true because they believe in Y. So basically, um, my question is, uh, if the only assumption that I'm making, like, I, I could go full pearl skepticism here, but... Um, I'm I'm going to give you something to uh, do your transcendental arguments on because if I have no assumptions, no a priori um, assumptions, then you cannot make a transcendental argument. So, um, you know, just to back that up, uh, Kant himself said 
uh, I entitled Transcendental All Knowledge, which is occupied not so much with objects as with the motive or knowledge of objects insofar as motive knowledge is possible a priori. So basically, the only uh, assumption that I'm going to give you um, is that uh, we are thinking beings that exist. Now, can you prove? Yeah, you've got me. I can't. I can't beat you. I acquiesced to you. Seven-year-old who just Googled uh, on a website what a transcendental arc is. I, you win. Can we move on to the next guy? All right. Uh, my next question then would be. Uh, also, also, thank you for answering that question. Um, I didn't. Answer how would you it. respond I, I to the you, forms you totally, of? You totally. You totally. You know. Next time you Google something like maybe you should go to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, if you want to get what a transcendental. That's exactly what I use. Good. Yeah, that that's exactly what yeah, I, I, I think. Uh, Call to think, yeah, I don't think he's interested yeah, so in the anyway, question. Um, yeah, you can't you can't approach things that are like graduate level and then try to trip me up on something that is philosophy one. It's just it's just poor form, bro. No. Okay. Um, so why don't we move on to someone who might be a little more uh, read on this. I think Socrates had a question. Socrates, you're on me. Can you guys uh, hear me? Am I audible? Yes. All right. So there's clearly um, the Euthyphro dilemma, right? We know that that's always been a big problem for most Christian apologetics. And I'm wondering how it is that you escape the notion either that things are good under God's decree, in which case our notion of good becomes arbitrary, or it's the case that there is some property of goodness in which either is constitutive of God or that God appeals to. Yeah, we believe that uh, what God reveals is a revelation character. So actually we do uh, avoid the dialectics of the youth dilemma. By How? But let me finish by pointing out that we there's an aspect to which we do accept divine command theory and an aspect to which uh, God's revelation also conforms to what is the case. And the what is the case here is God's own holy character himself. It seems like what you're saying is that, yeah, we find a way out of there and the way the answer would look is there's something about the character. But I don't know like how that gets out of the di uh, dialectic, which is to say that if you were to posit some property of God, then I don't know how. That's just going to be that um, what's good is contingent on what God commands. If that's the part of command theory that no, you I just, accept, I just, yeah, the, God's command is based on what He Himself is. Right, but then either you're appealing to some property of God in which God is confounded or not confounded, I'm sorry, constrained by. Right, there's a property there that defines God, or it's the case that you're no, saying that God not, ordains. That's, not, that's why it's not dialectics. We believe in the essence energy distinction. So the properties that we're talking about here, like goodness, they they don't define God. So this is why we don't believe in Hellenic dialectics. Hellenic dialectics actually tries to define the essence of the thing or the nature of the thing by in a, in a definitional sense, and we don't do that, and that's why we believe in the essence-energy distinction. So actually, Orthodox theology avoids this, to be precise, by the essence-energy distinction, but I, I don't think that you're going to—I'm not trying to be rude, but I, that's, I didn't want to bring that in because I didn't think you'd know what that was. I mean, that's fine. It just doesn't seem to like really avoid it. It just seems like what you're saying is, well, we reject the dichotomy, but then— um, any account no, but still, but still, all it seems like all it's going to be the case that you're just going to be falling back in. Yeah, all of Orthodox theology is predicated mostly on this idea of a distinction between God's nature and God's actions or energies. So this well, is how this does is, that get out though? 
because because it's not a definition or property of God in terms of what he is. It's one of his actions or energies. Right, but that still it doesn't like it doesn't seem it seems like it just avoids the question, which is to talk about, well, we have these things that we call to be good. Now you can say that those are like platonic properties. You can even say that those are just merely I just deny their, that's, it doesn't particularly matter how we define good. It just seems like you don't know what you're talking about. I just didn't second one second please. Let me finish. Um it just seems that the idea that you're forwarding is that, well, we avoid the dichotomy by saying, well, either good doesn't exist because um, it's just something that we call a uh, property of God, or it's the case that goodness is just something that's uh, provincial. It's an energy. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It's not arbitrary. It's what's revealed. How does defining it as an energy get out of the youth code? Because it's not definitional. It's not the essence of God. And you just said if you define it in a platonic sense, the essence energy distinction is used to refute Platonism. No, the idea of different definitions of Platonism is that we're just describing something that exists abstractly, right? So no, when you're talking about the one, Plato identifies the goodness. He, he identifies that with the monad, so it is the one. But that's just how Plato. I'm talking about like regular, normal. Like if you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia, I don't know if you're familiar with that entry, but Platonism doesn't strictly follow from how Plato, uh, Plato defined the good, right? The idea is that abstract objects exist in this like um, world of the forms. Essentially. Yeah, I'm very right? well. So you can be like, yeah, I've, I've had so you, yeah, you can be like a Platonist about math. You don't have to subscribe to what Plato said particularly about the good. You can be Platonist about all sorts of things. So when I talk about I'm like well, goodness, I'm well aware of that. I've been lecturing on Plato for years. So what's All right, so then you should be familiar that like we're not going strictly off of how Plato defined the good. We're still – and we're still like in the idea no, of I'm, the I, you don't understand. you don't understand the basic assumption of most, uh, which is absolute simplicity for the monad. Plato believes in the exact same thing about simplicity as Aristotle does. Right, that's but that's – Across all of those characters. That, but that's, that's a non sequitur to what we're talking about, which it is, is the idea. It is because you don't know what the essence energy distinction is and how it's utilized by our – Let's let's just issue. say I don't know what it is, but the point is, I know you don't um, how does it get why, out of the dilemma? You have to understand what, what how it comes into play and how it it resolves this issue because we don't accept the dialectical presuppositions of the question. That's why. Right, but what would you under what grounds would you have the to reject them? Number one, because our theology is revealed and it resolves this question, just like the one in the many. 
right? It seems right. like so, you're saying it resolves it. I'm just asking. Yeah, how. because it's a paradigmatic level question. So when you when you boil things down to paradigmatic levels, the only way to solve them is to compare the two systems. Greek Hellenic philosophy boils down to either dualism or monism. Orthodox theology avoids dualism and monism by the essence energy distinction. I think we're still left without an answer as to how this avoids the dilemma. Because you're asking a question at a paradigmatic level, and the only way to avoid uh, problems at that level is to compare different systems. So ultimately, this is a question within Platonism, and it's premised on the assumption of Platonism. That's Well, that's just absolutely wrong, I think. Um, no, it's not. No, it's absolutely watch, right. The way I think that's wrong is that we one could reject Platonism in all of its forms and still have a meaningful question in the Euthyphro Dilemma. I'm, so answering, the, the I'm answering the Euthyphro Dilemma by pointing out that it's a dialectic Hellenic philosophy that we avoid through the essence-energy distinction. Right. So when I ask, and I tell you that the Euthyphro Dilemma is not predicated on any sort of Platonistic account, uh, how, okay, then can it you like, show me like any reason why that would be the case? Every because time I can you imagine... tried to explain it by talking about the good or goodness being a property of the one, you've assumed Platonism. How does that follow? Because that is the Platonic view. That's where it comes from. Look, I can talk about properties without being a Platonist. Like, for example, I can, without being a Platonist, I could say um, a knife The Euthyphro dilemma comes from Platonic philosophy, and so if I reject Platonic simplicity, it's not a problem for me. So that's a non sequitur. It doesn't matter where it comes from. The modern yes, it account... Does. It does. Uh, hold yes, one second. Does, because one second. The argument one second. Is well, one second, please. Sir, one second, please. Absolute divine simplicity is the premise. Sir, please let me finish this thought. No, absolute divine simplicity is the premise. It's under modern construals of the Euthyphro dilemma. It's not the case that's predicated matter. on the Platonic uh, on Platonism. It's predicated on absolute divine simplicity, and you but can say no, it's not. You made a claim that the Euthyphro dilemma is predicated on the on Platonism, but what is under the one? modern what, what controls the of the Euthyphro dilemma, it is not predicated on on Platonism. I know so that I don't you're why listen, you're, dude. Listen, dude. I know that you're saying that. I understand that you're saying that you think you're reading what I'm saying, but what I'm telling you is that you're not. And you're not because it still assumes that the one here, right, is a simple entity. And so the question of how do you predicate about that entity is the question of the essence energy distinction. Do you understand? If I if I understand it correctly, then either it will either follow that you have no account for what is good, or you have an account for good that would be um, vacuous. No, uh, all Hellenic thought is based on dialectic. All Western thought is based on dialectics, and orthodoxy is based on rejecting dialectics. Well, then how would you account for good? The good is an energy of God. All right, so then if you're saying that what we call good is just an energy of God, you've fallen for the first part of the Euthyphro Dilemma, which is that it's a property of God. No, it's not, because it's not a property in the Western conception of what properties of the one. That's what you don't get. I'm, I just don't – I guess I don't get that. You're right. I'm just, I know. You don't. Like That's what I've been telling you. It you just seems like when you say energy – um, I can't really def I can't really tell the difference between energy and property. Like, what is the difference? Right, because they're they're different. That's why Orthodox theology is unique. It's the how only religion. It's the only religion in the world that teaches. But how are they different? Well, I'm. I'm you can go uh, listen to the last five years of hundreds of talks that I've done on that, and the books that I'm going to be putting out this this last two years, or you can read the Essence and Energy Distinction and the 
In the last, two, last two thousand years of the church fathers. I mean, I can't lecture for the totality. No, of I'm not asking years. for a lecture, right? Because it seems like when I talk about good, you say, "Well, good is an energy of God." I'm here to present now, correct. I'm here to present orthodox property, theology. And I'm not quite sure, like, what a property is under your. Yeah, because you're only because you only understand the basic Western dialectics. You think that there's only natures and properties, or accidents and substance, and that's not theology. That's not our worldview. So you need to go look. Re- like you need to go relearn our. Because, like, if an energy doesn't have these qualities, right, if energies don't have properties, what yeah, distinguishes I, I don't have, God's I, I energy don't from have, other? Yeah, I don't have the time to lecture to you uh, on this. Oh, okay. All right. I understand. Okay. So then the next question cool. would be if we just uh, ignore this thing. Okay. Well, I got you. I think, I think we're going to move. Thank okay. you. No problem. Bye-bye. Okay, next question is from uh, – let's go with um, – Ed, uh, I think Ed wanted to speak to you. Uh, Ed, you can go ahead and unmute yourself whenever. Yes. So, do you believe that the Great East-West Schism can be healed? And if so, well, regardless of that, what do you think the largest obstacles to that healing of the schism are? Uh, the Orthodox Church is the true church. So, uh, the schism is by the papacy leaving the Orthodox Church. So the way for this to be uh, healed is for the papacy to come back to orthodoxy. And if it did that, I'm sure there's different ways that canonically it could be reintegrated. There's a lot of examples in canon law. The church does kind of uh, make leeway and make exceptions through economia for how to bring back uh, wayward uh, people, uh, wayward bishops and so forth. So there's a lot of different ways that that could be done, but it could really only be done through um, an orthodox synod and the papacy rejecting the last thousand years of innovations. Again, I would refer you to the uh, long letter of Metropolitan Seraphim of Piraeus, uh, which you could peruse to see what the issues would be. It's about 80 or 90 pages. That's that's the, the best thing for this. By the way, for that last guy, what I'm trying to say is that the, the majority of the theology and philosophy that I've done in the last five years is precisely related to this very question of the one and the many, of the one and its actions, the essence-energy distinction. So I'm going to tell that guy, if he wants to understand what I'm talking about, what I've been lecturing and writing about, hundreds of essays, hundreds of talks on this very topic, he can go dive into my material. He can read David Bradshaw, for example, in Aristotle East and West. That would give him a good answer to how we avoid the Euthyphro dilemma. So I'm telling him the, the way that we avoid it, is to the essence energy distinction. I know he doesn't know what that is and doesn't find that convincing, but I think if he studied that and understood what it is, then he would understand how we think it avoids dialectics. And so it's actually operating outside of the substance accident uh, part component uh, dialectics of the West. We don't accept that presupposition. That, and so for us, that's why the question of the Euthyphro dilemma is actually uh, based on presuppositions that we don't accept. So we would actually critique the presuppositions of the Euthyphro dilemma and its Western dialectical assumptions rather than fitting ourselves into this uh, either substance accident uh, uh, typical type of model. You got anything to say to that? Say to that I guess not. Next so question the... is good. Oh, to his response to your question. Okay, again, so people are mad about the response to the last last guy. So again, I, I don't have to explain things over and over and over. And I, there's hours of lecture on these topics. I'm not going to sit here and give you an hour lecture on some 
system is very difficult. It's very difficult and complicated to explain the essence energy distinction. Now, if somebody asked that question, the easiest thing for me to do is to direct them to the many, many, many articles, talks, videos, and books on that subject. Um, I would be happy to talk about that if somebody wants to talk about the essence energy distinction, but the easiest way is to just say, go listen to those things. Now, again, you're asking one of the most difficult questions about the history of all of Western philosophy and Platonism. I've lectured through the totality of the public. I've lectured through Aristotle. I've lectured through countless dialogues of Plato. So I know about this, and I've talked about it. So I'm not trying to be rude to the guy. It's just that he's wanting to play gotcha, and I'm trying to explain to him that it's a very precise and nuanced thing that I put about the last 10 or 15 years into. So you can go read Dr. Bradshaw. Aristotle East and West is the best place to start in answering that question on how the essence of distinction resolves this issue. The next book, if you want another book to read on just this topic about Hellenic dialectics and how orthodoxy avoids it, is God, History, and Dialectic, Volume 1 by Dr. Joseph Farrell. It's about the first seven centuries of the church overcoming dialectical questions just like this. Cool. Okay, and you guys will find links to all of Jay's work in uh, clubs. Uh, to his YouTube channel and his website. We encourage you all to, to check them out. Uh, next question is going to be from Oxy. Oxy had a question about veganism, and Oxy is on. Oxy? I guess Oxy is in there. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on to the question by. Let's go with Frankenstein. Um, what is the Orthodox understanding of the Antichrist? Uh, yeah, I just did a video on that. So uh, the video that went up a few days ago on Antichrist, you can watch that. It's about 38-minute um, talk where I just kind of went through the different texts and types of the Antichrist. But simply put, uh, we would say that the Antichrist is a, an eschatological individual. There have been many characters in the Old Testament and in uh, history that are maybe enigmatic or exemplary of the spirit of Antichrist, but who are not the actual Antichrist. So we do think that he is an end times figure. He will uh, basically deceive the nations. He will attempt to, like Nimrod, set up a global government, global worship of himself, ultimately. Uh, and then at the second coming of Christ, he is uh, destroyed. So most of the church fathers have what you could call a partial preterist or mirrored view of interpreting the eschatological text, where they will look at Matthew 24 and Luke 21 as applying in the immediate historical context to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and then having a mirrored fulfillment at the end of time, because we would say that the temple, for example, is a type, or the tabernacle of the temple is a type of this universe. God inhabits the tabernacle in an uh, analogous way to how he inhabits the entire universe. And so in the conflagration, when the universe is rolled up like a scroll, that was uh, signified by the destruction of the temple. Um, I think Oxy's fixing uh, their mic, so as soon as they're done, we'll move on to Oxy's question. Um, but okay, for now, we're going to take. Can you? Uh, let me. I'm just going to pour some more coffee real quick. I'll be right back in like yeah, go for ten it. seconds. No problem, guys. Uh, just for mine. Um, so Jay is a guest on the server. Right? Now things can get pretty heated when you know we're talking about these things. A lot of people care about these things and spend a lot of their time uh, researching these topics. So. I can understand getting a little heated, you know, when you when you're debating, someone disagrees with you. Uh, just try to keep it simple, please. Okay. Uh, awesome. Okay, you're back. Okay. Uh, next question was from. Uh, we'll go with. Um, 
I think Frankenstein wanted to speak to you about that question. So Frankenstein, if you have anything to add to that, yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, 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 mean, don't you know. I don't care. I'll, I'll debate it all day long, but uh, you know, it's going to take forever <laughs> to explain it. But okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go on, Frankenstein. You're you're on mute. Uh, no, did he trick me? Hello? Yeah, he's not speaking. Okay, well, Oxy's ready. Oxy had a question about veganism. Can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my question has to do with um, name the trait. You're aware of the argument, right? Um, I don't accept that as a starting point, no. You don't accept what, my bad? You clipped. I don't accept the ask yourself starting point that was why we couldn't have a debate well i just want to do you think it's like valid no why not because he assumes that you can have ethical claims without metaphysics and epistemology and, and you can't how so because we debate worldviews that's what you're clipping is that just for me i think it's just uh jake can you repeat that really quickly please Is that just Hello? on my side, or is he also clipping? Jay, that... No, I think he's having a uh, connection. Jay, testing, testing. Can you hear us? Um, I'm coming back. The there you go. The uh... App closed. Oh, no I'm back. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. So my question was, uh, uh, yeah, like, how do we assume that we don't need metaphysics or epistemology? That was his whole point. Like the, at the beginning of the debate, when he came into debate, he said, I will not debate on meta ethical questions or metaphysics. I'm only here to debate normative logical claims and ethical claims about, uh, the name the trait thing, and I said, no, I'm here to debate worldviews, and so he didn't want to debate worldviews. And so I believe that ethical questions like um, should we or can we or ought we eat animals, uh, that those are part of a paradigm, part of a worldview, and he doesn't accept that, so that's why it's not possible really to debate this. Well, if if he's trying to talk to you about, like, normative ethics, I don't I don't see how that's him saying he's just denying metaphysics. I don't, I don't see how that would be the entailment. Because every claim assumes both ethical uh, ideas or notions as well as metaphysical ideas and notions and epistemological ideas and notions. For example, the guy earlier saying that, I just believe that uh, the self is an existing thing. Well, existence is a metaphysical thing, right? So you can't just, I mean, you, you may want to, but you can't logically uh, relegate that to only being a um, logical claim. It's also a metaphysical claim. I mean, you have to be just dishonest and say that, well, existence isn't a metaphysical question. Well, yes, it is. Obviously, it is. That's like the most obvious sector of metaphysics is the question of being or existence. So in the same way, you can't come to me and force me to debate when I'm challenging your presuppositions. And then you say, I'm not going to debate presuppositions. Well, that's what I'm here to debate. I'm here to debate your presuppositions. On what basis do you know what's right or wrong? Yeah, I don't I don't see how it's a presupposition, but if you want, I'm not going to just say no. And we can go into it. If that's if that's fine. On what basis do you know what is right or wrong? Uh, on the basis of like the just fundamental laws of logic, I think that we how I don't does the, how do the laws of logic tell you what's right and wrong? How do they tell me what's right and wrong? They gave me yes. an identity. 
how do the laws of logic tell you what's ethically right or wrong? Just saying that they give you an identity doesn't solve that question. Well, they give they give things uh, like an identity. So, for example, um, if I if I assign the the moral truth to a claim, right? I'm giving it its identification. So I'm saying that in order to determine some things, uh, you know, if it's moral or if it's bad or if it's wrong, right? If I if I am trying to determine that, I use the law of identity. I'm I'm identifying it. Mm-hmm. Is that a metaphysical claim? Why does that matter? Because you said you're not doing metaphysics, right? No, I said that I'm fine to do with whatever you want to do. I'm just telling you that from the basis of the law of identity, I can identify moral claims. No, you can't. <laughs> that's Why? the thing. Well, I just did it. No, you so, didn't. You did it, saying, but that's an invalid saying, move. It's a non sequitur. Just saying it's non sequitur and invalid isn't t- like explaining it at all. Can you be a little bit less ambiguous? Yeah, saying that, saying that something has identity and attributing it to it, the law of identity, has nothing to do with proving or justifying an ethical claim. How do you no. know what's right or wrong? Justify yeah, an ethical claim for me. Yeah, I'm saying that in order to give a, a claim, or it's like in order to justify a moral claim, use the law of identity. You give it its identity. How is that a justification? A do you not, do you understand, do you understand what? Wrong? I'm telling you, I'm telling you how you can determine when something is right or wrong. And then if you want to ask me how it like how? Uh, how to just, yeah, I just told you how. No, you, you didn't. The, you just stated yeah, the law I'm of identity. That's not an ethic. Yeah, that I'm is, identifying that. what is right and wrong. And I'm saying if you want to say, okay, that's called prove, ar- that's called ad hoc. That's called ad hoc. That's being arbitrary. Wait, 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 wait. That's, that's yeah, not wait, a justification. How? It's not yeah, a justification. How? How is it not a justification? Just saying it's because not it's a justification being arbitrary. isn't clearing any ambiguity. Do you know what it means to justify a claim or belief? Sure, yeah. What? I think uh, to justify a claim or belief, you're just substantiating the argument. No. Yeah, you don't okay. know what you're talking about. Yeah. That's basically. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, educate me then. No, I'm not tired debating 16-year-olds. Does anybody else have a question? <laughs> okay. Okay, Thank you, Oxy. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, next question is from Socrates. Uh, he, he just had a quick, a quick uh, attack, attacks question. Um, is a transcendental, transcendental argument for God written down anywhere formally? Uh, written down formally. I mean, anytime a human yeah. being makes the argument, it's 
a version of a formal argument. So I don't know what he's talking about. I think he's looking for like a a paper or something. He can read it's a reference. I um, mean, you know, I have countless debates on it. There's countless uh, philosophers and theologians who have dealt with this argument. Sure, uh, Greg Monson has many books on this. Okay. Uh, next question is from Rickett Ralph. Uh, Rickett, you are. Hi. Thanks for taking my question. Um, so it's a two-parter. If God is timeless and spaceless, then how could God interact with anything? And if not, why can't we observe God? Uh, those aren't the only proper. Those aren't the, aren't the only attributes that we believe God possesses. We also believe that God is imminent as well as transcendent. So He's outside of time and space, but He's also uh, imminently present within time and space by His energies. So that's, uh, again, a, a doctrine unique to Orthodox Christianity. I know that Western Christians will, will profess the belief uh, in the imminence of God, but actually their absolute divine simplicity doctrine kind of negates, precludes the possibility of God actually being imminent in the world. And that's why Western theology went in the track of basically demythologizing and removing God from the natural world and making it into a kind of mechanistic deistic machine. So only Orthodoxy really preserves this balance between God's uh, transcendence and his uh, immediate eminence and presence through his uh, personal energies. So it's not true that we only, it's not true that we only say God is outside of time and space. Okay, but from, <clears throat> from our perspective, wouldn't a being that is both inclusive of space and outside of it look the same as one that is just inclusive of space? No, because God is not uh, in the normative order of beings. God is not a uh, object amongst all the other categories of beings. But doesn't it necessitate that when an interact happens, that there's some observability? I mean, sure, uh, sure. There, there are many uh, re recordings of the theophanies of the Old Testament, and there's the many recordings of the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. Sure. All right, I think that covers everything I was asking. Thank you. Cool. Uh, next question is from, uh, let's go with OzFox. OzFox, uh, go to your unmuted. Hey, so um, I'm just wondering, earlier when asked the question about what would um, essentially heal the divide between Catholics and Orthodoxy, you seem to imply that um, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are different churches. Correct. Um, so as far as I'm aware, currently we're only in schism. And both sides do not see the other as heresy. Um, for example, no, as far that's as not I'm true. Aware, oh, so so you don't believe that we like share rites? Um, no. All of the major sacraments. Well, all of the. So you you deny that the major sacraments can be performed by an Orthodox teacher in the Catholic Church and vice versa? Uh, correct. We don't accept that the Catholics have the Eucharist. No way. Um. So as far as I'm aware, this is this is false. You can just. No, it's not false. You you might find an ecumenist who thinks that, but that's not true. So I I know that I, for like for a fact that I can go to a Greek Orthodox church. Yeah, um, I know the Greeks are the Greeks are wrong. Okay, uh, which Orthodox do you specifically? I go to a Russian Orthodox church. Okay, this uh, this may explain a lot because as far as I'm aware, um, the Orthodox. Yeah, what you're not aware of, is the, what you're not aware of, is the debates within orthodoxy about these very issues. 
So the fact that you can appeal to an ecumenist doesn't prove anything because there have been many periods in the history of the church where people in, were in, Ar in, in the Arian crisis. Many people uh, thought that Arianism and semi-Arianism were true. And so your argument is like saying that, oh, well, there's a lot of bishops who believe in Arianism, so I guess Arianism is true. No, it's not. And the Roman Catholic Church does not possess uh, valid Eucharist. Uh, they don't have a real baptism. I mean, we can, through economia, receive converts through chrismation. But typically speaking, historically, the Orthodox Church does not accept Roman Catholic baptism and, and because it's not a baptism. It's a sprinkling. That's not what the first millennium of the church did. It actually did a triune immersion. So typically speaking, uh, you're asking a question on the one hand of how do we receive converts? And then on the other hand, do we uh, accept ecumenism? And no, the Orthodox Church does not accept ecumenism in the sense of which you mean it. You might find Orthodox theologians, quote unquote, who do, especially out of... Uh, the more modernist circles, but to note, that's partly why uh, there is controversy in Orthodoxy today, which is precisely over this issue of ecumenism. That's why Bartholomew didn't get his uh, Council of Crete two years ago. Yeah, that's that's fair enough, because um, as far as I'm aware, two years ago, you were also down for the schism, so that's fair. No, uh, let's talk about that. What do you mean? Um, so as far as I'm aware, a few years ago, Russia, the Russian um, patriarch was considered in schism with the rest of the Orthodox Church. No, because, you don't um, know what you're talking about. I, I mean, they denied the the councils and they denied. Um, you are like, a complete moron. The Russian Church has never denied the councils. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, they have denied like meeting with the rest of the councils. So that's 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 no. Is it was multiple patriarchates. Nobody accepted Bartholomew's Council of Crete. As far as I'm aware, most yeah, of you're the, wrong. Um, you're, what you're I, saying most is completely the wrong. Were going to the you don't know. You just accuse me of being in schism. You have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, I think we're gonna move on from this question. Um, thank you, Osfox. Next question comes from Elephanor. That question is: uh, Do you view the submissiveness as described by uh, Machiavelli, Machiavelli of Christianity? as problematic for the cohesion of the orthodox uh, Christian. Uh, could you repeat that one more time? Do I, Machiavelli's what? Uh, do you view the submissiveness of Christianity as described by uh, Machiavelli uh, as problematic for the cohesion of the orthodox Christian? No, the orthodox tradition has uh, many emperors, uh, many warrior saints. Uh, this is a characterization of something like Nietzsche, or, or it's, it's characteristic of Latin theology. Latin theology is very feminine, and you get these manifestations like Faustina Kowalska and the, and the uh, excessive stuff with Francis of Assisi and stigmata and all this nonsense that we don't have in orthodoxy. We see that as prelust. So uh, Machiavelli's criticisms would apply to the bizarre excesses and manifestations that you see in Roman Catholicism, which are not characteristic of orthodox theology. That doesn't mean that there aren't errors and people who make mistakes in orthodoxy. Absolutely. The orthodoxy has the human element like anybody else has. But uh, no, the orthodox worldview is what built Byzantium, which, which has had multiple warrior saints and emperors. And so the fact that this is lost or, or not conceived of in the West, it really has nothing to do with orthodox theology itself. I mean, orthodoxy is the least cucked of the, of the Christian uh, quote-unquote Christian groups. And again, I would just direct you to, if you read the book uh, Ascent of Christian Law by John McGuckin, I mean, the last chapter of that is about the influence of uh, Byzantine legal theory on the history of legal theory. So again, we built the longest-running empire in the history of the world, Byzantium, 
Uh, and I would say that speaks to the power of our uh, uh, philosophy and our worldview. Okay. Our uh, next question is from uh, Jonathan had another question. Jonathan, go ahead and unmute. Go. Jonathan. There you I think I think Jonathan's murdered. Okay. Uh, next question is from Anne McCann. Um, do you think when AI becomes a uh, conscience or sentient, uh, would that be an issue for Christianity and religion? Uh, I think that it's impossible for AI to become "quote unquote" conscious. Uh, if you redefine consciousness to be uh, something that is just a blind material process, then you can redefine anything to be conscious. And we believe what consciousness is is something specific and unique to uh, our worldview and our anthropology. So our, our our worldview, our anthropology, is conditioned by our orthodoxy, and so therefore we could not attribute "quote unquote" uh, consciousness or sentience to inanimate things. So no, computers are not going to be conscious. This is a ruse. It's a deception. It's a bunch of baloney. Um, and so, no, I, I think that if you read uh, Minds, Machines, and Gerdell, the famous essay over at Oxford, uh, I still think that argument holds up as to how it's impossible for uh, algorithms, because that's all you're talking about here is this and that algorithm being programmed into a machine. Algorithms don't evolve into being conscious. Uh, next question is from... Uh, Buma, that question is, what happened to the wives or to the kids and wives in Ezra 10, verse 3? Isn't it cruel to leave them like that in the ancient world? Who took care of them? Um, I don't think most people here know what Ezra, verse, uh, Ezra 10, verse 3 is. So if you can explain that for us to start off, that'd be great. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know the Bible very well, but I don't have every aspect of the Bible memorized. So <laughs> let, me, let me see what Ezra 10, 3 is. Uh, is this talking about the foreign wives? Is that what we're talking about here? Um, I mean, I can read it. Um, though I don't know which version to read. To be oh, uh, in the Orthodox Bible, it's Second Ezra. So that's probably what he's, he's probably talking about, the sin of intermarriage. Um, is that what he's talking about? I'm actually not sure. So what I found, just pulling it up, right, and I'm in Google. And I'm sure I'm not sure this is a Bible that you'd use, um, but this is the uh, English Standard Version. Um, it says, "Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of our of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to law." Or to the right, yeah. So uh, it does seem harsh, but the reason for this is because the people that we're talking about here are a bunch of pagans. So for our view, and you can even see this principle applied still, you're not technically supposed to intermarry with people outside of Christianity or outside of Orthodoxy. Um, sometimes it does happen. Sometimes the church does make an allowance for that in terms of, again, uh, the application of canons and economia. But strictly speaking, you're not supposed to do it. And that's because it's always been that way. Paul says uh, not to, to intermingle, not to marry with unbelievers, because it, pre it presents a problem for the children and the upbringing. Now, in the case of uh, Old Testament Israel, most of the time, the people who intermarried, they fell into uh, idolatry and some of the worst kinds of versions of paganism. And this, this pops up consistently throughout the Old Testament, especially in Numbers with the Israelites who are tempted at Baal Peor. 
and Baal Peor was kind of like the most degenerate sort of Crowleyan type worship. So what's happening here in Ezra is that this tribe has basically um, not followed God and chosen to intermarry and align with paganism. And, and when you did that, it also involved, again, kind of the acceptance of the pagan rites and ceremonies. So it is. it does seem pretty strict. It does seem pretty intense. But um, that's the kind of allegiance that God demanded. And he didn't stop demanding that allegiance, right? Because he doesn't give these laws to be mean. The laws are there for our good. So they were the ones that actually caused this problem by doing what they were not supposed to do. They were, not, they were already told not to marry pagan women. And if you look at the life of Solomon, you see what happens when, <laughs> when you have too many pagan thoughts. Uh, it, leads to, uh, it leads to idolatry. Okay, so I think Boom is asking, like, who took care of the wives and kids? But it looks like, I mean, this might be oversimplifying it, that because these people married uh, pagans, the, the wives and children were just kind of, like, cast out, exiled, uh, put out on their own. Well, right? they probably, yeah, they probably would have went back to the people group. And uh, who was this, Canaanites? I'm trying to remember. I haven't read Ezra in a while. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was, I, I was actually looking at that. So you think they just went back to you know, whatever tribe they came uh, from? I mean, we're not told, There's... presumably. Okay, well, that's your answer. But... Yeah, it is, it is. Uh, it, it, so in Chapter 9, it's the Canaanites, and that's specifically who they were told to uh, remove from the Promised Land. Okay. Next question is from, I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce your name, uh, but you're unmuted. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, my question is this, uh, what's your opinion on the supposed connection between Old Testament Judaism and Canaanite paganism? What's my take on the false connection between Old Testament Judaism and Canaanite paganism? Is that what you said? I'm going to read out my question to you. Uh, quote, what is your opinion on the supposed connection between the Old Testament and Canaanite paganism? That the earliest form of Hebrew religion has its roots in paganism uh, with elements from... Yeah, go on. I see. Uh, no, I don't accept that. Most of the time this is based on the assumption of uh, what, what we, we could call word concept fallacy, where something like El, uh, God being used uh, in terms of the, the, the words like El or El Shaddai or Elohim, uh, most of the time, the argument that you're, not everything, but most of the time, the argument that you're talking about is based on that. Where, oh, look, similar terminology. So they're getting their arguments from, they're getting their theology from the pagans. Now, in our conception, uh, God did condescend, you could say, to speak to the Israelites in their language and in their worldview, in their framework, the way that they understood the world. So uh, there would be aspects of the local culture that mm -hmm. did make it that, that did make their way into israelite uh, worldview you could say but we don't believe that the revelation that god gave through moses uh again that, that that's distinct from kind of the traditions that jews developed over time the revelation that god gave to moses we don't think has anything to do with like babylonian or canaanite uh, um idolatry and in fact the the, the totality of of genesis is actually directed against idolatry. Um, all of Exodus is a basically an apologetic treatise against idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, the totality of Leviticus, especially when we get to the latter chapters where God forbids the Canaanite practices, those are all um, anti-Canaanite uh, treatises. And so I think one has to presuppose right. some, something like the documentary hypothesis to even kind of make this argument. Okay, then what's your uh, opinion on archaeologists uh, g giving us old texts 
but at the earliest uh, Old Testament we have on hand, saying it it is more henotheistic than monotheistic. Uh, yeah, actually, Orthodox theology preserves the notion that the uh, the gods of the nations are devils, and so depending on how you mean henotheism or 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 um, monotheism. Well, it it, it means on, worship on. one god. Okay, my apologies. Uh, so so if you if you look at somebody like Dr. Michael Heiser, I mean he's not Orthodox, but he's a Protestant scholar who actually delves pretty heavily into this question of the divine council. Uh, we don't have any problem with that. Uh, we actually think that the 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 nations when they fell. Uh, when they were scattered at the Tower of Babel, they were actually under um, fallen supernatural entities for several generations until the coming mm. of Christ. Okay, then, there is a divine council. Okay, so, so your other argument is that it's more or less a cultural coincidence. No. No, I'm mm -hmm. saying that the that God really does have a divine council, and that He's chosen to govern the universe, not just directly alone, but also through secondary causes like angels and men. And so, when God has a divine council, what you see, say in the Book of Job, or when you see God speaking to the prophets in His quote council, or when God speaks to the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim, that's the divine quote unquote council. So God Himself is synodal. Right, we believe that that's why the church has uh, synods on earth because it mirrors the heavenly synod or, or heavenly council. When we look in the apocalypse, we see, in our view, the same presentation. God, uh, John sees into heaven and he sees mm -hmm. a giant uh, heavenly church, which is a synod or a giant council, and we think the church on earth mirrors that. So, uh, in many cases, in the prophets, you look at the promise, prophet Amos. Uh, pro the prophet Amos, God uh, actually intends Amos to participate in the governance of things on earth. That's why the prophets at times, Moses, they're called gods. Uh, I, will, I will make you a god to Pharaoh. Jesus says uh, he, he called them gods, right, when he quotes the Psalms. So, mm -hmm. quote-unquote gods, for us, is just an example of God giving men the power of angels, and ultimately for us, that becomes theosis. And orthodoxy teaches all that same stuff. Okay, thanks for answering yeah. my question. Thank you. Next question from Real Charles. Uh, Real Charles, you are on mute. Hey there, Jay. Hey, what's up? So uh, my question, my question is, um, if we're supposed to believe in Jesus based on faith, doesn't believing based on proof in something like a transcendental argument kind of contradict? Uh, that's not what faith means. That's the uh, latter enlightenment Protestant Schleiermacher pietist Kantian idea of what quote unquote faith is. We don't accept that. Faith is not something that's set in contrast to reasons, proofs, and evidence. And in actually, in the New Testament and in the writings of the Church Fathers, they don't make that contrast. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Faith actually is the substance of things not seen. That means it's, it's substantial. It has evidence. It has proofs. That's why the New Testament offers, in many cases, proofs. Prophecies are proofs. They're, they're miracles and testaments to the, to the worldview. For us, it's just that we think the transcendental argument is the strongest proof. So uh, that's we don't accept fideism, and your question is presupposing that fideism is how we understand quote-unquote faith. Okay, I think I understand. Um, so in like Second Corinthians, when it says uh, that we walk by faith, not by sight, that doesn't kind of imply that, you know, leaning on your knowledge of something is kind of uh, antithetical to having genuine faith in something? Faith is uh, believing and trusting what God says. And what God says in revealed theology in the Bible and Scripture and in tradition uh, is, is the strongest form of argument there is. I mean, what could be stronger than God's own word? Okay, so then what is the basis of faith? Like, how does it work then? Well, it's a supernatural gift from God. It's a, it's a, it's not something that we cause in ourselves. We don't uh, rationally get it. We don't make it up. We do participate because we never lose our natural human will and freedom. Uh, but we co we we are co-workers and we have a synergy s y n e r g y with God's grace. And so, faith is one of those gifts that that God grants to us, and uh, we therefore trust and believe His word over anyone else. Okay, I understand. But but that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with proofs and evidences and argumentation. Uh, for example, Jesus says to when the dude uh, is in Abraham's bosom and he says, uh, Lord, let me go back and, and tell my brothers because if somebody rises from the dead, uh, they'll believe. And Jesus says, actually, no, because uh, even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't believe because belief is actually an interior matter of uh, conditioned upon repentance, right? So Jesus says that if they were actually interested in believing, he says they have Moses and the prophets. They could actually go and investigate the Bible and see if it's true, if they were really sincere. So Jesus doesn't really have any problem just saying that, look, if they really wanted to know if the Bible's true, they could go read Moses and the prophets and see if the prophecies are true and correct. But if they're not even going to do that, they're not even, it's not even going to matter if somebody rises from the dead because they'll just explain it away. So Jesus is not eschewing and rejecting proofs and evidences. In fact, every time Jesus argues and does apologetics, he's presenting evidences. Okay, so it wouldn't be bad for somebody who's really uneducated uh, to have faith on the basis of just their intuition, but it, it's helpful to have faith on the basis of uh, you know understanding of uh, God's Word. Well, actually, what we're saying in the transcendental argument is that there's nothing but proof of God. 
everything that exists is proof for God. There's nothing but proof. Every single molecule, every single event, everything is quite literally a proof for God. That's right, but we may or argument. may not recognize that, right? Like each right, person. That's why, that's, why, that's why the eyes of faith is what it takes to actually recognize and see that. That's why Peter says that know of a surety that Christ has risen from the dead. So Peter, Peter says you can have assurance, you can have knowledge and certainty that Christ rose from the dead. Peter says, be sure to, uh, he says, always be prepared in his epistle to give a defense for the beliefs that you have. So we're actually called and told to do apologetics. Okay, so what, what is it that might cause a non-believer or even somebody who's like openly hostile to God to uh, come to faith to receive that? Well, ultimately, the interior workings of man's heart are between them and God. So we know that, again, God's grace is at work in people's heart, but they also do have their will and they do make decisions. So nobody can come to faith without the gift of grace and the gift of repentance. Uh, But they also that's not still we, we don't think that that's oh, that's only God sort of like forcing you to do it. No, your will still participates in that, but it's at the same time a mysterious gift of grace. So God can use all kinds of means. God can use a tragedy in our lives to bring us to uh, being open to him. God can use good things in our lives. God can use, God could even use bad arguments, right? He could even use a teleological argument or a cosmological argument, which I don't think are that good, but he could still use those to bring people to uh, being open to his existence and so forth. So there's all kinds of different means and methods and tools and, um, you know, sacraments, you could say, or sacramentals that, that could bring people to to belief in him, um, but the actual mechanics of how that goes down is that the Holy Spirit works on people's hearts. Okay, can I ask a different question? Sure. Uh, do you think that the you know kind of look at you sideways as you're you know sitting in on literature right you know i've experienced that yeah i mean i mean that is unfortunate especially in the ethnic parishes but uh you know you're never going to find the perfect uh, uh people on earth that are the perfect donatist church right because i do consider myself to be on the way to uh joining orthodoxy oh cool yeah uh i think my last question then and i'll give it over to someone else is how do you think what 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 would be some good ways to spread orthodoxy in the West? 
I think a lot of people would be attracted to the arts. Um, if you watch the Icon documentary, that that uh, three-hour documentary that's on YouTube, a lot of people find that a, a great entryway because we see in the West so much imagery. Right? We're, we're an image-dominated culture. We see icons, quote-unquote, everywhere, but they're icons of just garbage. Right? They're icons of capitalist sales product crap. They're icons of, you know, fat chicks on billboards. I mean, it's icons of, of just nonsense. Um, and so I think people have a vacuum-sized, huge hole, black hole, uh, in their aesthetic awareness where they're seeking beauty and they're seeking art. So I would actually agree with Nietzsche that maybe art would be the salvation of man and the salvation of the West. And so the maintenance of the liturgy is actually one of the strongest um, arguments that orthodoxy has because it it has a powerful aesthetic that goes with it and we know that god you know created a beautiful world beauty is definitely one of the attributes of god it's it's the characteristic of the glory of god is that it's a form of beauty you could say an energy of beauty and so therefore god's worship and god's liturgy is orderly and it's beautiful it has the aesthetic that is appealing to man and I think that if you look at the comparison of, say, the Novus Ordo Church or the Protestant Church to the Orthodox liturgy, they don't even hold a candle. Uh, and it's very sad that the Latin Church has surrendered, uh, for the most part, in the Novus Ordo Nisse, its liturgical heritage, because it also did have a beautiful liturgy. But due to its innovations and its errors, it has actually capitulated to Protestantism, and hence why most Novus Ordo churches are worse than Anglican churches. So that's very sad, but uh, that would actually lead to a lot of people coming to Orthodoxy just on the basis of the aesthetics alone. So I'm not saying that you should convert just because, oh, it's a pretty smells and bells and incense. But that's actually one of the key things that does lead people to realizing, hey, maybe this is heaven on earth. All right. Awesome. That's all I got for you, Jay. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. You know what? Can I recommend that if anybody is interested in uh, go to YouTube? There is the uh, three-hour icon documentary. You just type in the icon document Orthodox, and you'll get that. It's had, I don't know, 70,000, 80,000 views. It's probably the best uh, introduction to Orthodoxy for Western people. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next question is from uh, Eggs Aren't Dippy. The question is, uh, why would you want Jesus to come back if it is an apocalyptic event? Why don't you prefer the Jewish Messiah who will bring world well, we think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, so the Jesus who comes back does bring about world peace because he doesn't just burn everybody up in some kind of giant nuke. He actually restores heaven and earth. So we actually believe that the return of Christ is what brings about the the reinstitution of Eden, you could say. Uh, and it will actually be better than Eden because Eden was, for all the good that it possessed, was still a mutable state that could be changed where man could fall. Uh, in the in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't think that it'll, it will be uh, possible to fall. So we're not originists, for example. Origin taught that you could have eternal falls. So uh, we don't think, by the way, that the new heavens and the new earth is like just floating around in a cloud or something like that. We actually think that there will be a restoration of the entire cosmos. So heavens and earth quite literally means heavens and earth. This earth will be restored, and the whole earth will be kind of like Eden was intended to be. Um, so for us, the, the fall was a pretty cosmic event. It affected all of the universe. It affected reality itself, even to the point of matter being affected. And so uh, one of the images that we have of the new heavens and the new earth uh, is not just the latter chapters of the apocalypse, but Jesus' body itself. When Jesus resurrected, 
his resurrected body is still created, but it's able to do things that he willed it not to do before his death. And so the fact that Jesus is resurrected in a body and in the same body, right, that he had before the uh, crucifixion and the, and the resurrection, that same body um, takes on new properties and is an image of the fact that we will still have, quote unquote, physicality, we'll still have a world, but it will be transformed and much different than the way that it is now after the fall. <coughs> Uh, I know we've been going on for like uh, about two hours now, so whenever you're ready to wrap it up, just let me know. We can. Yeah, you want to take uh, one or two more, and we'll call it. We'll call it a close. Cool. Okay. So next question is going to be from Yang2020.com. Uh, that question is: In your opinion, does God teach hate? Why or why not? Uh, depends on what we mean by hate. I mean, sometimes the term in the Old Testament, like hate sin, uh, we should hate sin and and love the sinner. That, that's roughly correctly a biblical view. So uh, are we allowed to hate people? No. Um, are we allowed to um, defend ourselves? Yes. Are we allowed to disagree with actions of people? Yes. But we make a distinction between people's actions and their nature and who they are. So when we say, for example, somebody is evil, we're not attributing evil to them as in terms of the is of identity, like as if they are equal evil. <laughs> like So they're still good in terms of their nature but they may do this or that evil action. And this is a very important for us as to why we're not Calvinists, for example. We're not Manichaeans. We don't think that evil exists as a nature or a substance. Evil is specifically an action of the will against the good for us. So um, evil people, quote-unquote, are not essentially evil. They're evil accidentally, you could say, in terms of their actions. I'm saying that in an Aristotelian sense. So uh, evil is not uh, essential or substantial to anything. It's a privation for us. It's a movement of the will away from the good. So in that sense, we hate, quote-unquote, the evil actions that people do, but we don't hate any person, and, and in fact, we are forbidden to, to hate anyone. Awesome. Okay, so next question. I think this might be our last question. It's going to be from Triple Z. Um, Triple Z, you are on mute. Okay, hello. Um, I had a pretty simple question, Jay. Um, this is just in reference to the debate you had with Bogan, if you remember that. Um, you remember uh, that guy by chance? The, is that the... Oh, the, is the, like, the, athe the atheist guy who... The weird dude about, friends of the Jack Engstrike? Is he the atheist guy that was talking about uh, transcendental arguments? Yeah, that guy? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I just um, I just recalled that like conversation, and so um, I think he may have come off maybe a little too confrontational so i was just wondering specifically like what the answer to this question was um so if god's existence is self-justificatory then what reason does the non-believer have to accept god's existence is there one in specific or no if god's existence is self-justificatory what reason does the non-believer have to accept it i would say yeah um i would say well if something is self-justificatory ju self <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. at a paradigmatic level, and if that's true, then one ought to accept what's true. Wouldn't you think? Right, but um, this is the issue Pogan raised, and this is like the thing that I was specifically unclear on, right? Okay. So, um, unless you mean something different by like justification, which you might, um, what I think most people typically mean by justification or to justify a statement is to raise the chances of some statement being true. Do you agree with that? 
Uh, I would say that that is an angle or an element of what it means to justify a statement or claim. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so I just don't see how saying, for instance, God exists, even mm-hmm. if we're taking this at like a, a paradigmatic uh, or a paradigmatic component, mm-hmm. I don't see how this necessarily would then justify the proposition or prove the chances of that statement being true. Well, because when you talk about the uh, chances of it being true, you're bringing into you're you're putting that in the realm of like what's probabilistic, uh, and so what's probabilistic would be like empirical sense data or things in the realm of, again, like normative logic or normative mm-hmm. claims. But when we are talking about something that is so fundamental that to deny it it destroys the possibility of knowledge, it's on it's in a different category. Do you understand that, or would you disagree? No, I I get that. So at that point. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I feel as though that might not be self-justificatory, or at least not what we seem to mean by it. So, oh, like, no. um, well, because that at okay at that point, we're not merely speaking self-referentially to the original proposition. The original proposition just being um, God exists, right? We're speaking to almost like a like a like a modus tollens, or maybe maybe not even a modus tollens, but like like a disjunctive syllogism, right? It's like a well, let me let me statement. let me state it like this. Let's so let's start mm-hmm. with like transcendental categories, like uh, the past or space and time and right. logic, and like, do you think those things are transcendentally necessary or? Yeah, I do. Okay, so if that is the case, then what we're saying is that to make those things, all of those, put them in a big bundle to make those cohere. And to ground them, we are saying that God is what does that. Now, we're not saying that God that that means that you must accept it because we're saying God does that. We're saying that that's a coherent explanation and coherent way to ground it. I know that you may reject that or you may not find that plausible. But our our argument is that when we say that, that's a coherent whole, that's a coherent system. Mm-hmm. And when we compare it to the other systems, it's not coherent because they don't have the way to ground or justify those things and when we look at what they do try to presuppose as their basic starting points it becomes very self-destructive and incoherent yeah so like the way i've taken your argument to be on like this specific topic 
has always just been like like if one claims to have true beliefs the one either claims to have transcendental objects in their worldview so right. things like truth and logic right. or they claim to lack transcendental objects in which case then they accept a self-defeating worldview correct right? so yeah like that itself then is like um, an independent argument that doesn't seem to necessarily bolster uh or rather that bolsters the proposition that god exists i would agree with that no uh, it's not independent because when you understand the nature of the mm-hmm. orthodox worldview it's very very broad and encompassing and it does include a lot of the things that back that up so in one sense you you, you i mean because i have to start somewhere in argumentation it doesn't mean that that argument right. is necessarily independent no i mean it's specifically like um it specifically serves as a justification for that proposition so i'd like say that's a good argument um, and then obviously, like, then we'd get into, like, the particulars. But, like, the thing that I'm more interested in is just how we can say the proposition God exists is, like, self-justifying. Like, I don't see how that uh, that statement necessarily entails well, that God exists. okay, let me, let me put that right. So yeah. we're not saying that the, the proposition God exists is uh, self-justifying, therefore proves God exists and is self-justifying. We're saying that God exists and is self-justifying in our worldview. So, like, what do you mean by that exactly? I feel like there's a what I'm saying is that, that that's true in our paradigm, in our worldview. We're not saying that that's the argument that I present to you to convince you of, of my worldview. Right. Wait, so then, like, what does it mean for something to be, like, self-justifying in this instance? Well, it's just, it's just to say that at a certain point, everything is self-referential in anybody's worldview. Okay, so then, like, what you're saying is, like, this is just one of the um, the things that we grant uh, in this specific worldview? Well, what, what we're saying is that everybody has, at some point in their worldview, when you boil it down, they get to – you can't appeal to anything other than the thing that you're appealing to, mm-hmm. right? So the, the classic example is that, well, how do you justify or go, give a, an account for logic without using logic? Well, you can't really. So does that mean that logic is unjustifiable or can't be grounded? No, and and this has been treated in a lot of philosophers throughout history most of the time by the kind of argument that Aristotle does in Book 7 where he says to deny logic would be to assume logic, and so therefore it's a reductio. It's an, it's an uh, argument from the impossibility of the contrary, and it's a tr- therefore a transcendental argument. Um, so what we're saying is that the argument for God is like that. It's not the exact same argument, but it's like that except that it's even more paradigmatically necessary and more destructive to deny because the existence of God in our scheme, in our system we're proposing, actually is what grounds all the transcendental categories. Right. Yeah, okay, no, I, I get all of that. Like, um, I guess I just didn't understand. So this is, like, the one thing that I feel like uh, maybe is just, like, a semantics issue, uh, at least for me. Um, so when, like, I hear something as, like, being justified by something else, Right. It just means that that thing is being justified on the basis of some other thing. So like um, if we say that, I don't know, tomorrow it's going to rain on the basis of some like inductive reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to say we're saying that in virtue of those sets of statements or those mm-hmm. sets of beliefs. So like when you say that specifically um, God exists um, within like your system. Right. Right. Or your framework right. that it's self-justifying. It right. feels like you're just saying that. You take it for granted and not necessarily there's a justification there? No, the, the justification is the impossibility of the contrary and the fact that the system is coherent. That is the justification. That is the argument. No, no, no. I, I'm saying that 
that wouldn't be self-justifying though the justification would be on the basis of like the impossibility of the contrary or basically saying that to accept any other worldview is to accept self well i guess that's just it depends on what you mean by self-justifying if you mean what i mean is that it is circular so i mean i mean i don't see a problem in saying that something circular is self-justifying yeah no no i'm I'm aware of that, but I just don't. Okay, so when we're saying like something circular, right? And then mm-hmm. all we're ultimately it's saying, yeah, it's it's self-founded, yeah. But when we're saying it's self-justifying or it's like justified in virtue of itself, I'm not so sure what that means. And when you say it, it sounds as though you're just like granting that God exists, which I'm not saying is like wrong. I'm just saying it sounds almost as though. You're well, but making see, but a see, presupposition rather than some sort of justification. No, it is. Yeah. It, is our, it is our most basic presupposition. And for our paradigm, for the Christian worldview, that's the only way to go. Like, we have to say that. We're forced to that. That's the only logical position for a Christian to take is that God is the ultimate transcendental justification, authority, presupposition, whatever. Mm-hmm. We have to start there because that's. If we don't start there, we're not being consistent with our position, and atheists should and could call us out for that. Right. Yeah, I know you've that, clarified. That's why, that's why, by the way, I join with mm-hmm. atheists when we critique Thomism and the classical arguments because they're not doing that. Right. Yeah, I know that um, you've clarified before that you're not exactly like a coherentist or anything, but it sounds as though in one case you're speaking of like a uh, a similar or something no, similar what, to what, coherentism. What what I meant was that yeah. um, we don't wholly unite ourselves to like a modern secular theory of epistemology. It's just that right. the, Christ- the Christian worldview is closer to a coherentist type of approach than it is mm-hmm. to the classical foundationalist, uh, properly basic type of approach. Yeah, because it sounds almost as if this is like a properly basic belief. In the same way that someone well, it, might th- this say, is where this is where it is semantical because if you want to say mm-hmm. do you have any properly basic beliefs we would say well yeah in a sense you could say that God is ultimately the most properly basic belief for us but the, the reason we don't usually talk that way is that, is that most of the time if I'm debating a Roman Catholic or a Thomist or a classical apologist they're not going mm-hmm. to even that, that's not going to make sense to them they're gonna they're gonna say you can't presuppose God as your your uh, properly basic maxim it has to be the laws of logic it has to be teleology it has to be causality. So most of the time when I'm engaging in polemics against uh, Thomists or people like that, I'm not going to speak that way. But if you want to say, could you um, portray your worldview like a stack of beliefs? Yeah, you could if you want to put God at the bottom of the stack. It's just it's just not the most helpful analogy. So what is more helpful mm-hmm. is the web analogy where God is at the center of the web. And then the other transcendental categories are kind of outside of that center of the web. And then as you move out, in concentric, you know, layers outside of the center of the web, you get more and more, uh, you, you tack on the beliefs, you could say. And, and the web model is better because it shows the interconnectedness of all the different beliefs. Yeah, and I know that's in line with, like, your belief that, like, ethics and, like, metaphysics and Correct. logic are all, are all compatible and all, like, codependent. Yeah. Okay, so then, um, personally, as a non-believer, um, yeah, this is, like, the issue I was having. So when I was hearing that it was, like, self-justifying in the conversation you had with Pogan, um, I feel like maybe this is, like, the semantics issue that I was speaking right, to. Right, no, I'm not saying to he, yeah. you that I'm not saying, hey, unbeliever, mm-hmm. God's existence is self-justifying, therefore you must believe it. That's not the argument. The argument right, is, that, right. is that in my system, I have to say that God's existence is self-referential and justifying at the most basic level because that's what I have to be committed to to be coherent and consistent and faithful to our view. 
Right. So you're basically saying you start off on the meta level and you you take God's uh, existence for granted, and then that makes like a coherent view, correct? Correct, and that's why, for okay. example, I would say that we can't divorce apologetics from our theology. And what a lot of people like Thomas or people like that do is that they do do that. Right. Yeah, so I think that that's what uh, Pokemon was getting, because he thought what you were saying was like, I don't know, I guess we could just right, that's be why we kept going back. Right, this. that's right. I right. And that's why we kept going back and forth on, I was trying to say, no, you're not getting what a transcendental argument is. A transcendental argument is not yeah. just, me, just me saying to you, God's existence is self-referential, therefore you must accept it. That's not what the argument is. It's more so you saying that, like, transcendentality is like a necessity for any real view for any like meaningful uh, yeah view i believe like god's the only way to right. count for it correct yeah correct yeah and then the um so this is like more of a follow-up i don't i don't know if you have the time or yeah, if you're fine. okay with it. yeah so i know that you think that god necessarily need be there to account for like transcendentality uh transcendentality so like why is that exactly well, it's not that God uh, only accounts for transcendental categories, uh, and therefore that's the only reason we believe it. I mean, it's a whole package thing. It's rather that – so you could have like the – you could talk about evidences, um, but the problem is that I believe evidences are part of a paradigm. and They're not – they don't come to us without being theory-laden, right? They're part of a, a paradigm that we interpret things. And the problem with the classical apologetic arguments is that they view evidences like they – they aren't that way. They're just brute facts that you look at. Oh, if you just look at these evidences for Christianity, if you pile enough of them up, you'll believe. But we don't think that human psychology and worldviews actually work that way because our mm-hmm. belief systems are going to determine the way that we interpret evidence. So the reason that's relevant to your question is um, I could list a whole bunch of arguments, but the arguments for like the historicity of Jesus or the fulfillment of prophecies that Jesus fulfills or whatever – those are all going to be conditioned by our governing presuppositions. So for us, it's just a better way to yeah. cut to the chase and to say, look, um, there are all those things. And there's also, you know, personal events in my own life. Right. So we don't discount mm-hmm. people's existential personal experiences, but I'm not going to bring that forth as an argument. But what I'm saying is that the right. reason I believe Christianity is like all of those things, plus the kind of apologetic points about philosophy, where we're saying that there's, okay, so you have all those transcendental ca- categories of which I would include in there the things like abstract objects, mathematics, numbers, laws of logic as well. And I'm saying that when we understand the theology that we present, it actually does make sense and it makes all those things coherent. So, for example, universals, uh, the problem of universals is solved by belief in grounding them in the mind of God. So that to me is a pretty strong argument. Now, does that mean that it's true because it's uh, cohesive and persuasive? I ultimately would say yes, because – Again, when we look at the whole the system as a whole, when we grasp it as a whole, and I think this is the most challenging aspect of the transcendental argument is that it does necessitate um, different th- aspects of Orthodox theology that a lot of people aren't familiar with, like the idea of the logi. That's where it gets difficult. But right. that's what you have. That's where you have to kind of look at the rest of the theology, which backs up the worldview. Yeah, because oh. I know that they're. Oh, I'm sorry, God. Uh, I think we got to wrap it up. I can come back sometime. We can have another chat. Awesome. Sure yeah, thing. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so, Jay, thanks so much for coming onto the server. We really appreciate it.
Yeah, man, it was a pleasure. It was a great questions, and uh, I'm even glad that it, I mean, I, I'm not mad at the guy that got that where we got heated. I, I enjoyed it. It was actually a great chat. So, um, thank you. And yeah, if you want to check out my stuff, uh, my essays and my um, blog is jasonalysis.com, the website. Um, I do offer like lectures and and stuff that relates to Plato and Aristotle, the ancients and medieval stuff. Um, there's lectures on geopolitics. We have I think 30, almost 40. Uh, talks on the top global elite works of the last 100 years so you can find all those lectures at jay's analysis and at my youtube channel jay dyer and then i have two books esoteric hollywood one and two where i do uh film analysis on kubrick you know david lynch like the you know the big films so you can get all that uh, at the shop at my website and then you can also watch my tv show hollywood decoded which you can find online awesome and you guys find links to all of that and the uh club news uh, we encourage you to, to check that out. Um, we're going to go ahead and unmute people now. Uh, guys, please uh, be civil when you're unmuted. Don't start yelling over each other. Um, again, thanks to all of you to, for for coming to the AMA, too. Um, By the way, to the server, can I ask one quick question? Go. Do you, do you mind if I – I mean, I, I know that we're not technically – I did put a link to you guys' server, but uh, uh, a lot of people are asking if I would continue debating and whatnot in mine. Is that okay, or would you rather not? If, if you don't want me to, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Of course, you're more than welcome to stick around here too. It's totally. Um, or we can. No, I'm not getting tired of it. It's just. Oh, okay. I don't want you stuck here for four hours, six hours. I'm sure that that's a possibility. Oh, uh, we we did a, a nine hour Q and A the other day. Mine just were. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Anyway. Okay. Um, well, I'm I'm sure we can work out like a partnership or something. We can link your server. You link this okay. server and, and your server if you're. Cool. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about it in DMs in a little bit. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start meeting people. Jay, thanks again for coming. Um, you're more than welcome Thank to you. stick around, of course. Um, uh, hey, guys, again, please be civil when you're in meeting. Don't start screaming over each other. There's, there are a lot of people in here. I'm sure a lot of you got a lot of things you want to say in response to what just happened. Um, Maz, if you can ha help me unmute people, that'd be Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.